That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog, because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Welcome into the show this Wednesday, July 12th here in Portland. Eugene Roseberg, Klamath Falls. This is the Bald Face Truth on the BFT Radio Network. Nubian for Kanzano. Going to be with you. 503-417-7575. Day after the All-Star game in baseball. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I had fun watching it, especially early. Although, uh, I think the general feeling was it was a little lackluster, but... It also drew a, a 7 rating, which was its lowest in a long time, but it's still the highest rated you know, all-star game among the, uh, the ma- major sports. So props to MLB for doing that. But are we kind of past all-star games? feel like it, it used to feel more special across the board. Maybe that was just a function of me being younger, me being a kid, but... It's lost a little of its uh, luster and its must-watch value for a number of reasons. But at the same time, thought Seattle looked good. Thought T-Mobile Park was a really great environment. The Mariners that participated, Julio Rodriguez, George Kirby, didn't see anything from Luis Castillo. They uh, they left something to be desired. Kirby gave up a run. Julio uh, struck out, but he also got a walk-off. Craig Kimbrell in the bottom of the ninth inning, so... There's a little something for everybody last night, but uh, I was talking to somebody earlier. Really, the chance to shine in front of the fans, that's what the Home Run Derby is all about. And uh, it's really hard to simulate superstar plays the way that you can in the NBA All-Star game. Lobs and, you know, dunks and alley-oops and big block shots and fancy dribbling. It's really hard to simulate those kind of uh, show-off skill sets in a baseball all-star game the way that you can do it in an NBA all-star game or even a uh, you know an NFL Pro Bowl, at least uh, back in the day. So uh, if you had any takeaways on the uh, the all-star game, you can chime in at Twitter, 750thegame, or at Jude Anuba. You can also call 503-417-7575. There's a lot to get to on the show today. Spencer McLaughlin from uh, Locked On Pac-12, Locked On Ducks podcast. He'll join me coming up in our second segment because... Because college football, and this happens to me every year, but college football is closer than you might think. The Big 12 had its media days today, and that always signals to me as the unofficial start of college football season. Now, the same thing happens to me every year. I get really hyped for media days and uh, for all the conversations around college football and across the country, especially here in the Pac-12, especially with the Ducks and the Beavers, and then... I'll uh, I'll look up and be like, are the games here already? And it'll be August 8th on the calendar, and then it'll be August 14th, and it will still feel like forever before the actual games begin. But I mentioned it on the show yesterday that I had recently picked up my Phil Steele magazine, 
And uh, you got the Athlon previews. You've got the Lindy's previews. You got the Phil Steele previews. Every year I swing on by Barnes & Noble Bridgeport Village. It's uh, it's like a rite of passage to kick off the midsummer for me now. This year I did it, and there were like two or three other guys right around the same magazine stand. Just a bunch of dudes looking at magazines. Nothing to see here. And uh, I picked up my Phil Steele and was like, hey, guys. And they said, hey, we, we're doing the same thing. So it was kind of like uh, everybody knew. This is how the start of college football season begins. Um, so we'll talk to Spencer McLaughlin. want to just get a little bit of a, a reset on where the Ducks kind of roster stands. Who are some of the new faces that fans will be eager to see on the field this year? What's at stake in year two for Dan Landing and his assistant coaching staff? Uh, what to expect from Will Stein, you know, succeeding Kenny Dillingham. And uh, in turn, what's at stake for Bo Nix? Because Bo, you know, in all likelihood, this will be his, you know, final year playing college football. And then Eugene and was already a cherry on top to get him back for a second year at Oregon. But I'm kind of curious what his NFL prospects are. On the face of it, I don't really see him as like a first-round prospect. But, man, you listen to some other guys. In fact, Albert Breer, you know, Monday morning quarterback, he was on the Dan Patrick Show this week. We got some audio from it that we'll get to later on. But Dan pretty much just asked Albert, like, all right, we got Caleb Williams, we got Drake May, who's next? And in my head, I was like – Penix, you know, Michael Penix at UW would be my third quarterback. And uh, Albert said Bo Nix. I just thought that was interesting that Bo Nix is getting a little bit more national, you know, media attention and focus as a potential first round pick in the draft next year. Now, what does that really mean for his, you know, season at Oregon? Well, if Bo Nix gets into the first round of the NFL draft, it means that he had a stellar year at Oregon. And it means he was probably healthy for the vast majority, if not all, of the season at Oregon. And if you're giving me a healthy, performing Bo Nix in this offense with Will Stein, man, I think Oregon's ceiling is 10 wins, you know, potentially more. And it really just, to me, it does come down to the quarterback health and performance. But you could probably say the same thing about Penix at UW. You could probably say the same thing about Caleb and Southern Cal. You know, you could say something you know, in a similar vein with DJ at Oregon State. Now, that is a slightly different situation. DJ got to win the job first, I guess. And Jonathan Smith is still, you know, pulling that, you know, needle through, uh, through the thread, just trying to make sure that there's a competition at quarterback at Oregon State before he just out and out awards it to DJ Uyunglele, but if DJ wins the job, assuming that he does, stays healthy and performs well in that offense, I mean, I said it a couple weeks ago, but then I think the Beaver ceiling is seriously unlocked. But then you got Washington State fans saying, hey, Cam Ward, he's got all the tools. He's got another new offensive coordinator and uh, this guy coming up from Western Kentucky who set a bunch of group of five records with the Hilltoppers. If Cam Ward stays healthy and performs all season long, then Wazoo's ceiling is unlocked. And you got all these programs in the Pac-12, including the two in our state, that think they all got a chance. And I don't know. I I have a hard time remembering the last year that that happened, the last year that was the case, where at least half the conference feels like they have a chance 
to win the conference and uh, potentially be one of the four teams in the college football playoff at the end of the year. This is the last year of the college football playoff, so speak now or forever hold your peace if you want to be considered a top four. And uh, we've been bantering about it a little bit, what the ramifications will be going to an expanded playoff next year. And, you know, I think it matters more if you make it to the playoff in a four-team field. It just does than if you make it in a 12-team. I'd rather... I'm a fan of expansion. I'm glad that we're going to 12. I'm glad that it gives a back 12 champion pretty much an automatic qualifier right into a 12-team playoff. I'm glad about that. But it's going to mean a little bit less than it did if you make it in as part of the four-team invitational, just a numbers game. And yes, it is still an invitational. I think uh, Kanzano is apt when he refers to it as a college football invitational and not a college football playoff because... It does seem to be a beauty pageant most of the time, and the big brands get in there for a reason since they draw the eyeballs. But then every so often, just because you get a big brand in there, don't mean they win. Just look at Michigan TCU you know, last year in that crazy uh, Fiesta Bowl. I was part of the uh, college football playoff semifinal. But I don't know. As a Pac-12 fan, as, as someone that roots for the Ducks and the Beefs to succeed and this conference to succeed, I hope that this last year, this last year of four teams in the playoff will still include a Pac-12 team for just the third time ever, right? I mean, you got Ducks 2014, you got Huskies 2016, and you don't really have anything after that. I mean, Utah was sniffing around it a couple times, but the 2019 Utah team was, what, ranked fifth in the country going into that Pac-12 title game with Oregon, and then the Ducks ran all over them. With uh, with C.J. Verdell and, and company. And uh, Oregon ended up winning the Rose Bowl and um, in Justin Herbert's senior year. So there's been a lot of like close chances at the playoff. In fact, even that Oregon team, had they not lost to Arizona State down the stretch, they probably would have been in the playoff as well with their only other loss, ironically, coming to Bo Nix and Auburn in the opener. I'd, I would just... As a Pac-12 fan, I'd like to look back on this final year of four-team playoff and say, all right, we at least got a team in there three times. To me, three in a decade, it's marginally better, but it still sounds better than we only got two teams in there in a decade. And the one team we got in there came in the first season of the playoff and with the Ducks in 2014 and then the Huskies in 16. And, you know, at least Oregon won a game. If you're Washington, uh, you drew the short end of the straw as the four seed against Alabama and uh, were not able to keep that one as close as you'd like. 503-417-7575. So we'll talk a little college football with uh, Spencer McLaughlin, locked on Pac-12, locked on Ducks. That'll be coming up at uh, 320. Carter Bonds as well from 247 Sports, uh, formerly of Beaver Blitz as well. He's got a more national pulse on the college football sphere now but previously was on the Oregon State beat. So we'll ask him uh, some of his thoughts about college football from a national standpoint. We'll also get some of his thoughts on Oregon State specifically coming up in the 4 o'clock hour. A little bit of a a funky thing in the world of the Portland Timbers tonight. They had a game scheduled July 4th about a week ago at Colorado Rapids. And, uh, of course, here at the BFT Network flagship, 750 the game, we carry Timbers play-by-play on the radio side. And, uh, that July 4th game was kind of an adventure. 
It was delayed by severe weather. It started. We finally got through the first half. Then it got delayed again at halftime. And about, you know, four and a half hours after the game was supposed to begin, we learned that it got suspended, or in the soccer language, abandoned. The game got abandoned at halftime with the score tied uh, 0-0, 0-0. And uh, they're going to restart it tonight. At 6 o'clock. So basically this uh, Bald Fish Truth program is going to lead you right up into Timbers Soccer at Colorado. We'll have uh, play-by-play coverage of that coming up at 6 o'clock. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how the Timbers uh, navigate. It's been a tough year for Portland. Uh, not a lot of goals to speak of. And a little bit of drama behind the scenes. Some uh, some trade demands by a, a certain winger uh, that is not with the team right now. The designated player they signed for big, big money has been a little inconsistent, then a little banged up, and then has had moments of brilliance, but really hasn't been, you know, the out-and-out star that they were hoping for game in, game out. But um, at the same time, there's, there is still time, if you're the Timbers, to uh, to make up for it. Right now, they're outside the playoff picture, so they need some results to get into the top nine this year in the Western Conference. Like, it's pretty... It's a pretty generous playoff structure in Major League Soccer this year. Um, but speaking of Major League Soccer, I'm seeing that Lionel Messi is coming to Miami. And uh, I think he is in Miami or is about to get to Miami any moment now. And I'm seeing some articles like around the Miami Herald and a lot of uh, press clippings in South Beach that they're like, of course, Miami, this is the home of the stars. First, it's Lionel Messi. Then it's Damian Lillard, and they're doing all this thing. They're already assuming Dame's coming to Miami, that it's already a done deal. And depending on who you uh, follow on Twitter, there's a a few other reports, whether or not they're real um, or, you know, valid is up for debate. But uh, there was one uh, social media account that was uh, reporting that the Miami Heat Trailblazers trade talks have really... I can't believe I'm saying this, but heated up. <laughs> They've really gotten a lot of progress. The latest was Kyle Lowry, uh, two first-round picks. Tyler Hero to a third team, so not to Portland. And then just one of either Nikola Jovic or Jaime Jaquez Jr. back to Portland. Uh, now this person says that Portland is trying to get both Jovic and Jaime Jaquez Jr., and Miami has refused to this point. And Miami is also trying to shop Caleb Martin in case they need another first-round pick to send back to Portland. So that puts Caleb Martin on the trading block. And people that have shown interest in Caleb Martin so far are Dallas, the L.A. Clippers, Sacramento Kings, Oklahoma City Thunder, and the Philadelphia 76ers. So it's unclear on what Miami will get aside from Damian Lillard in that potential trade, but it likely will be more players. Uh, This account is citing a source that says it's not a matter of if, but when for this trade, but we are getting close. And that kind of goes along with, you know, what I've been hearing, what I've been saying is I think Damian Lillard to the Miami Heat is 90% probable at some point. Now, whenever that point is, I'm not entirely sure. I still think it's before the season. I still think it's before training camp because that would be in everybody's best interests. But as Joe Cronin said Monday, he is in no hurry to get that deal done. 
You know, the timeline is not nearly as important to Joe Cronin than the final result, which is adequate return value in a trade. And he is not going to sacrifice on return value simply to make sure that Damian Lillard gets to Miami and uh, gets there as quickly as possible. This was Cronin earlier this week. I think what I've learned more than anything is patience is critical. Like, don't be reactive. Don't jump at things just to seemingly solve a problem. Um, I think the teams that have ended up the, in the most positive situation post-trade have been the ones that have been really diligent and taken their time and been not been impulsive or, you know, the teams that really kept their urgency under control. So I think that's how my approach is gonna, has been with this and will be with this, is we're going to be patient, we're gonna do what's best for our team, um, and we're gonna see you know, how this lands. And if it takes months, it takes months. If it takes months, it takes months. And uh, we kind of smile at that and laugh at that. And that was certainly a premeditated, intentional phrase by Joe Cronin. Um, if it takes months, it takes months. That was a message to Lillard. It was a message to Pat Riley. It was a message to anybody trying to get involved in these uh, Lillard um, trade talks that Joe Cronin is in no hurry whatsoever. And if you want to come be part of the discussions, you can be. But... I'm in no hurry to make a deal, especially with you, Pat Riley. Again, it's going to happen eventually. I think we all know that. I think any notion that Damian Lillard is going to be back with the Trailblazers or any other team is, I guess it's not impossible, but I would really caution you not to uh, not to wholeheartedly believe that. Because that's the other thing. What do you think is going to happen? Even if they don't trade Dame. And this is what I don't understand about what other people are saying about it. Even if they don't trade Dame until the season, what value is there for Dame to play? Because he could get hurt, and now his trade value is diminished. And if you're the Blazers, like, do you really want to try to get Dame on the court with Scoot and just, like, see what happens? Is that really within your best interest? Like, you're certainly not tanking, but at the same time, it's not bad to have a lot of lotto balls this year. Like, you're not expected to be very good. Why give yourself a better chance to be good with Damian Lillard? It's really within Portland's best interest not to have Lillard play. It's within Lillard's best interest not to play either if he's comfortable doing that. So this idea that, hey, Blazers just don't have to trade him and he can just play for the Blazers. I agree with the first part of that. They don't have to trade them. But if they don't, I still don't see them stepping on the court. But that, that's my take. 503-417-7575. Curious what you think. We'll bounce a break and we come back. Uh, we'll talk a little college football with Spencer McLaughlin, 12 and Locked On Oregon Ducks. Uh, it's getting closer than you think, college football season. So we'll dig into that a little bit. Carter Bonds. Uh, from 247 Sports. He'll also join the program in the 4 o'clock hour as well. Tudor Newby in for John Cazzano right here on the Bald Face Truth. Whittington alongside, and he will fake it and then throw it to the end zone. Touchdown, Franklin. Tuck takeaways, Bennett Williams getting it going, and oh my goodness. Welcome back to the program. 
Bald Face Truth on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network on this 12th of July. Mentioned uh, Notice Big 12 Conference doing their media days today. And uh, that caught my eye. You know, Generally, the Wednesday after the All-Star Game, I've heard this mentioned before, is considered to be the slowest sports news day of the calendar year. And uh, I think Brett Yormark was like, hmm. Let me capitalize on that. And so they did Big 12 Media Days. Seems much earlier in the calendar than uh, than the other conferences, but at the same time, um, I could be uh, wrong about that because uh, I do know Big 12 likes to go pretty early most years. Pac-12 will have its Media Day coming up on the 21st, Friday, in Vegas. John Cazano will be there broadcasting live, and we'll have all the big interviews, and uh, it will be a lot of fun. That is always one of my favorite days of the year as well. And... Let's get to one of my favorite guests on the show, Spencer McLaughlin. He's the host of Locked On Podcast Network with the Pac-12 Conference, Locked On Pac-12, and, of course, Locked On Oregon Ducks, and he's joining me now on the show. Spencer, thanks for making time, my friend. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you Thank you for having me back on the show. Yeah, man. Um, Big 12 had their media days today. Does it feel like college football is getting any closer? <laughs> Yes, it does. Did you know that this is the last calendar month of 2023 in which we will not have a college football game? Ooh, okay. See, that mm-hmm. that makes me feel mm-hmm. a little bit better as well. I know. I know. I, I, I can't, you know, the realignment stuff is still crazy in the media rights, and that's, you know, dominating my Pac-12 show content-wise for sure. But I, I've had a number of people who listen or watch reach out and say, man, can are you are, are you going to start talking about football? Are, is, it, is it time to talk about football? And I was like, yeah, actually, it is time to talk about football because there's so much to get to, and it should be such a great, great final season of the Pac-12 as we know it. I'm well, not saying the Pac-12 will not continue to exist, but as we know it right now, this is the last year, and it should be just wildly fun. At least over here, you know, we're talking so much Dame Blazers drama, and um, you know, you know, rightfully so. It's just a massive story that will you know continue to. I'd be talking about, but then in the back of my head, I'm like, yeah, what, what's, what else is out there? And I'm like, oh yeah, let's just talk some college football. It's always a good time to, uh, to talk college football. Um, you know, you mentioned like the media rights negotiations. That's one thing that I don't know. I, I guess I'm a little bit exhausted with it. Cause I'm just like, I just want to see the final result and I care less and less about the process on how we get there. I just want to see what the final piece of the puzzle is, but I also don't want to be naive Spencer in thinking that, you know, the meteorites, you know, um, final result, obviously it has an effect on what this con- uh, conference looks like and feels like moving forward. You know, wh- where where is your updated stance on kind of where things fit with the Pac-12 and the, the meteorites negotiations? Any timeline that you get a sense of from what you're reading and what you're hearing? No, I, I, I don't have one because I, I, I really just continue – to get the sense that the Pac-12 presidents and the people negotiating the deal and the front office and everybody just don't have the same sense of urgency. And John Canzano has reported this uh, a number of times, most re- recently, I think yesterday, that, yeah, they're just not that worried about it. You know, we've kind of talked ourselves into uh, a circle of, of sorts. We're just going round and round on, are we going to get a deal? And we read between the tea leaves and look at this comment, look at this suggestion, look at this theory, look at that potential outcome and everything. And then it just leads to the same conclusion, which is, well, they don't have a deal and everything's terrible because they don't have a deal, but nobody's left either. So, you know, so for all the doomsdayers and all the, you know, naysaying about the Pac-12 that's going on around that out there about, oh, like they don't get a deal soon. You know, people are going to leave. Well, clearly not because 
They haven't gotten a deal this entire time, and nobody's left yet. It doesn't mean that schools aren't thinking like, hey, we need to be prepared, you know, and have an option if this deal is not going to end up being good enough to best suit our athletic interests. But, you know, I look at that Pac-12 media day and just think, look, if I'm George Klyovkov, do I want to go out speaking on the record for the first time in many, many months and have to answer a bunch of questions about a media deal that doesn't exist? No, I wouldn't want to do that. But then again, I would not have basically punted on the PR strategy the way the Pac-12 has over the last several months. I would have had a more coordinated effort. I would have been more open and, and forthcoming with regards to what was actually going going on and who they're talking to and everybody like that. Maybe the media partners were asking for silence on that front, in which case their hands are tied. But I just think repeatedly, Judah, what we've seen is that the Pac-12 does not think like you and I do, does not think like most of the people listening to this program do. And so it makes sense in our heads, oh boy, you got to have a deal by deal done by media day and whatnot. But they just continue to show that they're operating on a different timeline. They don't appear to be massively concerned about anything. Nobody is jumping ship. That noise that was, you know, mostly noise quieted down. And, you know, teams are clearly going to stay put until they see the, the media deal and understand what the situation for the conference is. So I wouldn't be surprised if we got an announcement of a deal prior to media day, but I'm also not in the mindset of, boy, it's just going to be a, a shock to me if you don't announce a, a media deal by, by July 21st because, you know, I've, I've gone past the point of no return, you know, whether it's the San Diego State deadline or the number of comments that we've seen of like, oh, you know, it's in the final stages, it's weeks away, it's almost done and everything's yeah. like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go kick the football, Lucy. I'm Charlie Brown, and I'm just going to say, no, nah, I'm going to go play basketball instead. Oh, man, you're speaking to a Charles Schultz fan, so uh, I resonate with that, certainly, <laughs> Spencer. Appreciate that. Uh, let's let's go ahead and be foolish for a moment and still walk down the line of San Diego State SMU as potential oh, yeah. expansion additions. Um, does that make you excited as, as a Pac-12 fan, the, the idea that San Diego State and SMU could come to this conference and what that would look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I love especially the idea of San Diego State. I, I think both in their own way have potential. I think SMU's got deep pockets, and San Diego State's got a much better history of competing in in the two major sports. I think, I think SMU is still kind of the right coach away. You know, we'll see what they do this year in the American Conference now that, you know, the biggest competitor there is probably Tulane and Memphis, uh, which are some solid programs. And Tulane coming off their best season in – uh, in program history, beating USC in the Cotton Bowl last year. The Green Wave are in a good spot. But, I mean, without Cincinnati, UCF, and Houston, who are in the Big 12, that's, you know, a, an opportunity. You know, the door is open for SMU to kind of show that they do deserve that Power 5 offer, that they can win at a high level. They've brought in a great transfer portal class. I'm pretty sure it's still top 15 in the country right now, and they're still in the American Conference. They haven't even announced that they're going Power 5 yet, and I think that can only – increase their potential but I, I i think smu is intriguing i think san diego state since 2016 is uh, about seven four i think is their record against pac-12 schools they beat utah a couple of years ago and the youths went on to win the pac-12 championship so i i think san diego state's got plenty of potential and look if you're a pac-12 fan listening to this you know a lot of people travel the games to go watch their teams and what about a weekend in san diego with a college football game at the center of your activities lineup what about that sounds unappealing? Because I'm, I'm here for it, man. If you're up in the Northwest and it's October and you're like, well, my team's going down to play San Diego State, 
yeah, weekend in San Diego just doesn't sound that bad. That sounds, that sounds pretty good. So, you know, it's not as if the conference, I'm not going to say you're pretending that the conference is as strong with San Diego State and SMU as it was with USC and UCLA, but I think the potential of both schools is solid. I think they represent an intriguing level of upside respectively, but for different reasons. And, uh, you know, just as a fan, I'm like, yeah, having San Diego in the Pac-12, that just feels, that feels right. I was in San Diego uh, about a month and a half ago for a wedding, and it was, it was, it was awesome. It was just, I, we went to the wedding on Friday. It was beautiful. I played golf on Saturday. I played golf on Sunday. And I was like, yeah, weekends here. That's just, that's just a good time. And I, I think that that, in addition to the athletic upside, uh, is, is a net positive for the Pac-12 and, you know, basically the best option that you have at this point. I feel like that's something even the Pac-12 CEO group should be able to get behind, Spencer. Is, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, but, yeah but, but, but again, they 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 should be able to do a lot of things and Ugh. yeah we just we just haven't seen any of that materialize so i just i i stopped getting my hopes up about it a while ago like one day we're gonna wake up and the deal's just gonna be done mm-hmm. and we're gonna have no idea like pick a day between now and the start of the season and there is an equal chance that the date that you picked and the date that i picked playing pin the tail on the donkey is uh, is, is correct at this point. Well, at least it would be before the start of the season at that point. Uh, it's all we could hope for. <laughs> Spencer McLaughlin joining us, Locked On Pac-12, uh, Locked On Oregon Ducks. Let's talk a little Ducks, Spencer, and uh, the quarterback in particular. Yeah. I know Bo Nix, a, a lot of opportunity in front of him here, and uh, gave a really insightful interview with uh, PFF that I thought was good, too. Um, what's at stake for Bo Nix this season in Eugene? Well, his, his uh, opportunity to be a Heisman finalist is uh, possible. I won't sit here and say it's likely because there are so many good players and so many things have to go right. You know, the history of Oregon football is if you're going to have a Heisman finalist, you have to be squarely in the national championship picture. You know, they made the playoff in 2014 when Mariota won. They were uh, in the national championship game when LaMichael was a Heisman finalist. So I think that's the first thing that would have to happen if he's going to reach that level but I, I think the other thing too is you know he's been he's been flying up NFL draft boards this offseason because of the year he had a season ago and if he if he produces on on a similar level to what he did in 2022 even fighting for an injury over the last few weeks of the season then he can I think up his draft stock and solidify himself as a late first early second round pick because he, he's somebody who's you know got the size got the arm got the mobility but it's been the, the, the refinement, the polished nature of his game that just was never there at Auburn, and he just never looked like he was going to realize his five-star potential. And then he comes to Oregon, suddenly he's got an offensive line, he's got high-level receivers, he's got a good offensive coordinator, he's got a good team, uh, he's got a you know good enough defense that certainly struggled uh, at times last year. But I, I think that that all you know contributed to him having a really good season. And so if he you know, shows that it was not a fluke, that it was not a one-off, and that he can, you know, win when Kenny Dillingham is not his offensive coordinator. And those have been his most productive seasons from the winning side of things when Dillingham's been his OC, not always his play caller, but he was he was last year. Then I, I think Bo Nix can solidify his draft stock as an early round guy, as a top three or four quarterback coming out of a deep quarterback class in 2024. And he can make a run at, at the Heisman Trophy. It's an uphill battle, but it's not an impossible one. His preseason odds are top 10. So I, I think that he's got plenty to play for there. And I, I think the biggest thing for him, honestly, is the way last year ended, the, the, you know, the collapse from the Ducks against Oregon State, 
not getting the conference championship game when they were good enough to do so and they've been playing so well and you know losing the Washington game close I think those things stung with him because he he's the leader he's the captain and he's a guy who's now you know going to be in that position again from a leadership standpoint and I, I think that he's ready to take that on wants to take that on and wants to show that you know, he can lead a team to, you know, the highest level possible in, in college football. Around him on offense uh, are a lot of skilled athletes and what looks like yep. a pretty decent offensive line, even though there's a, a decent amount of turnover there, too. I've been kind of trying to nerd out as much as I'm able to and watching some uh, <laughs> UTSA stuff uh, off YouTube in this offseason and trying to get a sense of what Will Stein is bringing with him. Uh, to Eugene, and uh, obviously the skill set at the receiver position is going to be a lot uh, higher than it was uh, with the Roadrunners. But tell you what, Spencer, that was a nice, nice offense that Stein put together with UTSA. What kind of early sense do you have, you know, spring ball being behind us now, and you're probably not showing a whole much at spring ball, and fall camp obviously still in front of us by quite a ways, but what kind of sense do you have in what the Will Stein offense might look like in terms of, you know, uh, perhaps personnel or just overall style, similarities, any differences that you think you can anticipate from what the Kenny Dillingham version looked like a season ago? Well, I think the two biggest headlines that Will Stein has given us this offseason are uh, the, the quote that he gave early after he was hired and then one that he gave, I think it was sometime during a, a spring ball. And, you know, the, the, the early quote that he had was feed the studs. You know, create one-on-one opportunities for your best players. Get your best players the ball in space and have them be one-on-one with a tackler and say, hey, try and bring this guy down. Try and bring down Bucky Irving. Try and catch up with Tez Johnson, the transfer from from Troy, who's uh, Bo Nix's brother and is a really, really talented football player. Try to keep up with Troy Franklin. You know, just try and make a one-on-one play with those sorts of guys. I think that's the first thing. The second thing that he gave uh, in, in spring ball was, hey, you know, we're not going to come in here and, and try and reinvent the wheel, right? I mean, we saw Oregon's offense last year. It was one of the best in the country. They had balance. They had explosion. They had production. They can get better in the red zone with their touchdown percentage. They struggled at times uh, without a season to go. But overall, they, they did very well. The numbers were very good. You know, high 30s in terms of points per game. I think they're around the 38 points per game, which is, uh, more than enough to win you quite a few football games, which Oregon did last year. And, you know, I've I've watched those uh, same sorts of clips over and over and over again, trying to understand what to expect from him. And, you know, he uses a little bit more pistol, or at least he did at UTSA than, uh, you know, what Oregon showed a season ago where they went to it sometimes, but not often. I'm curious to see how often they do that. You know, there's some interesting concepts that you can run there. I'm not a huge pistol guy i'm okay with it every now and then i think it creates good play action opportunities and ability to get a deep shot but on the ground you know i i, I just struggle sometimes when you're going straight pistol halfback dive because you know your running back's got to run seven yards just to get back to the line of scrimmage and, and that's just a long time for your offensive line to block with an offensive line that is as you mentioned undergoing a lot of turnover this year so i, I don't think it'll be exclusive or anything like that but you'll see rpos you'll see deep shots you'll see uh, play action and uh, you know it's not as if Dan Lanning is going to be uninvolved with with the offense I think that's a, a pretty big misconception amongst fans is you know well Dan Lan- like not at, not every coach is like Chip Kelly who 
you know, there there were reports back in the day that he just he, he didn't go to defensive meetings, that he just wasn't involved, he didn't do anything like that. I, I've heard that on more than one occasion from people. But most coaches, especially ones who are not play callers on either side of the ball, which Dan Landing is not, they're going to be involved with understanding what's going on on offense, contributing to those meetings, discussing the philosophy, putting in place, having sequences in there that, you know, he wants to see and whatnot. And that's, you know, I think more of a joint effort than, than people realize. It's not as if Dan Lang, just because he was a defensive coordinator, is never coaching Bo Nix or never saying anything to him, right? So I think the offense will look mostly the same. You might have a couple of wrinkles here and there. And I, I think the biggest area where he can improve is in the red zone. I think that's where Dillingham kind of showed his, his youth and inexperience at times a season ago um, is that you just had some instances where, you know, he tried to run the same play twice or – didn't quite have uh, the offense as dialed or fine-tuned as it needed to be uh, once he got down inside the 20. And it's a tough place to run offense for sure, but I think they can, I think they can improve on that front. And, and I think Stein is uh, the sort of up-and-comer and young guy that you want to hire if you're Dan Lanning. And I, you know, trust him at this point because he's made a lot of really good hires. But I, I think you'll, you know, see a couple different wrinkles from last year here and there, but mostly should should look pretty similar. Spencer McLaughlin, Locked On Pac-12, Locked On Ducks podcast. My sneaky hot take with Oregon State this year is that DJ Uyunglele is not the most important figure to Oregon State's success in 2023. It's actually Trent Bray. And the reason I argue that is because of the moving pieces in the secondary and kind of the lack of pass rush that Oregon State's had over the years they're having to replace a lot of guys with a lot of experience, especially in the back end, and not to mention their leading tackler, Omar Spates, who's off to LSU. And Spencer, yeah. I just think if game scripts go differently for the Beavers, you know, where they're having to, to either play from behind or things are just a little bit more fragile defensively, I think that puts DJ in a bit of a tough spot, you know, whereas I think he has a chance to thrive if he's playing from out in front. I just don't know if this Beaver defense will be able to to put Oregon State in positions to play from in front uh, against stingy competition. What do you make of that? I think the balance for Oregon State fans they're looking for this season is how much better can our quarterback be compared to what the step back could possibly be from the defense. And I, I think your take is sharp. I really do because I think Trent Bray is really sharp. I think he is thoroughly good. This is an Oregon State team that switched identities in one year. They went from an offensive-led team to, you know, we're going to try and outscore you with uh, the run game and play-action pass to we're a defensively-led team and we have one of the best units in the conference. And that all shifted because Trent Bray became the defense coordinator. So I think he's really, really good. And he does have some key losses. Jaden Grant, Alex Austin, out of the secondary from a year ago. Omar Spates, gone as you know, your, your leading tackler and a kind of field general there at middle linebacker. Now, they do bring in Kelsey Howard, who's a four-star recruit, not the sort of guy the Bees get a lot, but he's out of the Las Vegas area along the defensive line. I'm curious to see if he makes an impact in, in year one because, you know, the Oregon State defense was so good a year ago. But the curious thing about it is, unlike most great defenses, they did not have a great pass rush. That was not something they did. They were just so good in coverage and their defensive play calls were so ridiculously sharp that they were able to just kind of overcome that and 
I question if they can do that again. But then the flip side of the coin is they went, what, 6-1, and 7-1 and one with Ben Goldbranson as their starting quarterback, who I think we all agree is pretty limited. So if your quarterback takes a step up and your defense takes a step back, I don't need, you know, Oregon State doesn't need D.J. Uyengale to go for 300 yards a game. They just need him to be in like the 230 to 250 range and throw a couple touchdowns, right? Or sometimes throw no touchdowns and just don't turn the ball over. So if you can accomplish it, remember Oregon State would have beaten USC last year if Chance Nolan hadn't, you know, gifted the ball to the Trojans four times. So if they can get that from DJ, just average, you don't need to put up Michael Penix or Caleb Williams or Bo Nix kind of numbers. You don't need to do any of that, which is why it's, I think such a perfect fit because he was asked to do that at Clemson then you can have the same sort of season that Oregon State had a year ago. I don't know if you've checked their schedule out, Judah, but they they have perhaps the most beneficial schedule of any of the six conference contenders this season. U, USC, UCLA, Oregon, Washington, Oregon State, and Utah. They have key matchups at home. They miss USC. They get UCLA at home. They have Washington at home. They're only tough road games, really. They have Utah at home. They have Oregon on the road, and there's one. There's one more game where they could where they could maybe still. I think it's Washington State, and they have Washington State on the road. But compared to the other schedules, they've got some high high favorability in that sense. And if they can just get DJU to be what Chance Nolan was at the beginning of last year, and have him consistently be that, I think they can offset a little bit of a step back on defense with greater production from the quarterback position. All right, last thing for you. Uh, you know, people high on the Beavs, high on the Ducks, high on UW, and, of course, high on USC and, and even Utah because, you know, they've been there and done that. But out of that kind of next tier of teams, I'll throw in there, you pick one of these teams that you think has the best chance or you're the most high on entering this year. I'm going to toss in Arizona, Washington State, UCLA. Which of those three teams are you the most high on as maybe being one of the, an under-the-radar conference contender? I don't know if I feel comfortable, frankly, putting any in the conference contender category because I have questions about UCLA's quarterback position and what they're going to be doing there. It's, it's either going to be the Kent State transfer Colin Schley or the five-star freshman Dante Moore or the veteran backup Ethan Garbers. Don't, don't really know uh, what's, what, what's going on down there in, in Los Angeles right now. But either way, in a quarterback-dominant league, I just don't know if you can be average there and win, and win the conference. So that's my concern with UCLA. Now, Washington State could have a guy in Cam Ward, a quarterback, who – if he plays the way he did in the second half of last year, Washington State can be an eight-win team, and you know, like they could be similar to Oregon State a year ago. And I don't know if they could get to ten wins, but I think Jake Dickert's a really good defensive coach, and I think Cam Ward is an explosive player and a dynamic one at the quarterback position on offense. Now Arizona is the interesting one. I would say the most upside of any team is Arizona because I trust their offense and what they are bringing back compared to what they did last year. I trust them the most. Washington State's lost some wide receivers. They've got a new offensive coordinator. Arizona's kept everything the same. 
And if Arizona can just be a better defense, not a good, but they were they were a five and seven team last year with the eleventh best defense in the Pac-12, second to last, only to Colorado in points and yards allowed per game. Their offense is as good as any when they're able to run the football with just a little bit of success. Jaden Delora, when he's not turning it over, can be wildly productive, and he's got a couple of high-level receivers in Tetheroa McMillan and Jacob Cowling. So I think when you look at the Wildcat, I'll say I'm highest on them uh, over Washington State just a little. I think UCLA is a pullback team this year. I think they're 7-5, and 8-4, and four, which is still pretty good, but – if you're talking about a dark horse, like, hey, watch for that team really popping this year and winning eight, maybe not, but like, you know, eight-ish games, but you don't expect them to, I'd probably lean towards Arizona. It's great talking with you, Spencer. Thanks for making time, man. Yep. yep, you're very welcome. Anytime. There he is, Spencer McLaughlin, a little football talk, locked on Pac-12. Locked on Ducks. Bounce break. Come back. You've got the bold face truth. Oh, great stuff with uh, Spencer McLaughlin, Locked on Pac-12 and uh, Locked on Oregon Ducks podcast. Got immersed in that conversation, then looked up, saw we were up against the clock and had to get out. But uh, appreciate Spencer's time and his uh, his expertise. It's good this time of year to uh, remind yourself that college football is not all that far away. And uh, it's okay. You can dive into it a little bit. And start to get excited. And we're going to continue our college football talk coming up at the uh, the top of the hour. Carter Baines is going to be joining us uh, with a little bit more college football expertise. And, of course, he's got a Beaver background as well. So we'll talk some Oregon State and National College Football Playoff uh, talk with Carter Baines. That's coming up next to start our 4 o'clock hour here on the BFT. Great hour one in the books. Kicking off hour two. Taking you up to 6 o'clock here on the Bald Face Truth of the BFT Radio Network. Wherever you may be listening, thanks for tuning in on this fine Wednesday, July the 12th. Day after the MLB All-Star Game. And mentally, I'm starting to turn the pace toward football season. I know it's foolish. I know it's rushed. I know I'm going to uh, exhaust myself with all my football takes by the beginning of August. And then still have to wait a month. But I'm doing it anyway. I can't help myself. And I'm also bringing in some enablers along the way. Our next guest is the uh, staff writer on the National News Desk for 247 Sports. He's gone national after covering the Beavers uh, for Beaver Blitz previously. He is Carter Baines joining us to talk a little college football here on the Bald Face Truth and some Beaver takes along the way. It's great to talk to you, Carter. How are you on this uh, 12th of July? I'm doing well. Today was uh, the first day of Big 12 media days, so uh, we're getting close to that time of year where you actually have real football to talk about, uh, which is always nice because we know this, you know, the off season can get kind of dry, but um, big time of year, big time of year for sure. Yeah, I saw Brett Yormark doing his thing, you know, uh, beating his chest a little bit, but he, hey, he speaks well. He speaks well, and, uh, you know, it's cool to see the Big 12 out there first with their media days. I'm curious from your vantage point, because you spent a few years, obviously, covering Oregon State, you know, predominantly. What's your role like now at 247, taking a more, you know, national role? What's what's your day-to-day like and, and your overall focus, and how has that been different from just, you know, covering one program? Yeah, it's been fun to kind of uh, branch out a little bit, you know. Obviously, here on the Pac-12 side of things, uh exciting year big quarterback season on the west coast and everything but um you know it's the the sec's mantra it just means more that that there's some truth to it uh so it's it's been fun to you know to kind of branch out cover some of the bigger markets 
um, obviously still want to represent Oregon State and the West Coast and, um, you know, doing what I can to, you know, to promote West Coast football uh, on, on the national landscape. But uh, there are some pretty amazing storylines uh, throughout college football this year. It's been fun to dive into some of that a little bit more. Um, but obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be fully tuned into this Oregon State football season. I'm going to be watching USC and UCLA, you know, intrigued how they perform in their final year in the Pac-12. Um, but it's going to be fun to, to, to tune into some Alabama games and some Tennessee games and, you know, watch Georgia a little bit closer this year. So I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Yeah, that'll be, uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, what, what is the biggest thing? And maybe I'll, I'll regret talking about this with you, but what is the biggest challenge you think for getting that West coast football respect with, uh, some of the other national peers out there that you mentioned? Well, it doesn't help that the Pac-12, you know, frankly, continues to shoot itself in the foot. Um, <laughs> like I said, you know, I feel I, like I regret bringing it up. Bringing it up. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how long we can go uh, without a media rights deal before, you know, the Pac-12 loses even more credibility on the national stage. And it is unfortunate because I, I do think that some of the best college football in the country is going to be played on this coast this year. You know, I, I mentioned the quarterbacks. The Pac-12 also has the uh, the highest average ranking uh, among a lot of the preseason polls. So, you know, your quality of play out here is actually going to be fantastic. Um, it, it's just a shame that, you know, the Pac-12 as a whole is going to be changing going into next year. You know, you're going to lose your biggest market. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen media rights-wise. Uh, you know, does the conference remain intact at 10? Does it add... Uh, new members, you know, I think there's a lot of fatigue nationally with with the Pac-12 storylines, and and frankly, those outside of the Pac-12 footprint have kind of tuned out, which uh, again is just unfortunate because I think they're really going to miss out uh, on a pretty entertaining season. Yeah, it is going to be an entertaining season. Um, last year of USC UCLA in the Pac-12, maybe we start with that. Good for the conference or? bad for the conference or neutral for the conference if one of those two teams ends up winning the conference title at the end of the year? Man, that's a great question. I think Brett Yormark was actually asked something similar at Big 12 media days with, you know, their their whole situation with Texas and Oklahoma leaving. Um, to, to be honest with you, that's it's not really a perspective that I've thought much about. I, I think as long as those two programs are in your conference, you have to capitalize on their visibility, right? I mean, USC winning the Pac-12 gets Pac-12 teams on TVs nationally. Um, it, it gets the Pac-12 in debates nationally. And so I think, uh, you know, having those teams win as many games as possible in your league while they're here is is always a good thing. But, I mean, there is certainly an element of wanting to boost the profile and boost the stock of those teams and those programs and universities that are going to be coming back next year as well. So, um, you know, I think the fans of those schools who are coming back, the the Oregons and the Oregon States of the world, um, you know, obviously they have they have a bone to pick with with USC and UCLA, and they're going to be rooting hard against them. But um, from a conference perspective, I, I don't see much wrong with, you know, with Caleb Williams making another run to the Heisman Trophy, USC. Uh, making a college football playoff run. I think that's only good for the conference as long as they're here. Carter Baines, 247 Sports, joining us on the show. Uh, from an Oregon State standpoint, you know, I'm kicking around this this take, Carter, and I'm curious what you think. 
that if you had to boil down the Beavers' season to one most important figure, I think a lot of people would, would say DJ Uyunglele, and I, I totally understand that. But I would say that it's Trent Bray, and I would say that for the reason of plenty of defensive turnover in the secondary, losing a key linebacker in Omar Spates, having to come up with some sort of pass rush to to uh, slow down this bevy of, of talent in Pac-12 quarterback circles. And also, you know, with, with DJ, I don't want him playing with two score deficits or, you know, being down by a touchdown, being down by 10 points. I feel like DJ's, you know, best attributes probably would shine when the game script is in his favor rather than him having to play from behind. And I'm not entirely sure, Carter, if this Beaver defense is going to be able to just simply go out there and replicate the kind of success that they had a season ago where they were able to get into those positive game scripts basically every single week. Uh, so from that standpoint, I think Trent Bray has got the most on his plate and the most to prove this year as a defensive coordinator with with a bunch of moving parts in the back end of his defense rather than DJ Uyunglele. Now, I could be talked off that, and it's kind of a sneaky hot take, but what do you think of that overall comparison? No, I think you're exactly spot on there, to be honest. Um, you know, look, regardless of of what DJ Uyunglele brings, to this offense, I, I think the offense will be improved this season. I, I mean, the floor for DJ is is much higher than what you had in the past. I, I think the running game is going to be solid. That offensive line remains one of the best in the country. You know, the wide receiver group will be solid again. I, I don't think there are many questions on the offensive side, and it's it's kind of funny how the narrative changes. Many years, Oregon State was an offense first team that couldn't stop anyone. Last year, they're a defense first team that struggled to put points on the board and now it's kind of flipped back in the other direction if the defense is as good as it was last year man who knows how good Oregon State can be because that offense is probably taking a step forward no matter what Um, you know even if if DJ struggles this year I I think you're still going to get more out of him than you got from the quarterback position last year Um, so you can almost bank on scoring a, a substantial amount of more points this year if you hold teams to, you know, low 20s scoring, I think you're going to win just about every single time you step on the field, um, which is I, I mean, it's pretty remarkable to, to, to say about Oregon State. where they're, they're in a position where they all they have to do is be as good as they were last year, uh, and they're going to be in a conference title race. So I think, I think you nailed it uh, with, with that comparison there. Um, saying that Trent Bray is, is maybe one of the more important figures. You know, can he replicate what he did last year, or was it just a product of having a ton of veterans on his defense? Going to try to ask this with semi of a straight face. DJ's going to win the job, right? I mean, I would, I would presume so. Like, <laughs> you know, obviously Jonathan Smith and and Brian Lindgren aren't going to come out and name a starter probably until week one. Uh, that's kind of been their their mo. You know, wait until the season opener, uh, wait until that Monday or even game day to to name the guy. But look, I mean, I, I think there's something to be said for Bengal Branson coming back with winning experience and you know having knowledge of the system and whatnot and obviously Aiden Childs having a ceiling that, that might be higher than anyone in the room. Uh, but you got to go with the guy who is a, a former five-star recruit. And, and look, I mean, the production that he, that he produced 
at Clemson, yeah, it might not have lived up to Clemson standards, but if that's on Oregon State's roster last year, I mean, Oregon State's probably in the Pac-12 title game. So, um, you know, I, I haven't seen anything from DJ to suggest that he's not going to win the job. You know, he looked fine in spring camp. I think, uh, obviously, he just needed more time to, to gel with the receivers to lock down some timing issues. But, um, no, I mean, he a, a guy like DJ Uyunglele does not come into Oregon State into this situation um, without a fairly certain idea that he's going to win the job. Carter Baines joining us, 247 Sports. The betting line on that opener with San Jose State is like Beavers minus 16 and a half, minus 17. At least that's what it was when it, when it opened. And I don't know, man. Like <laughs> They should win, but that that tells me that there's some really positive national perception around what Jonathan Smith is, is building at Oregon State. Um, do you expect this season to be one, and let's just focus on the offensive side of the ball since we're talking DJ, where there's going to be, it's a bit of a slow start, and they build momentum, or with a fall camp underneath him, given that he's got spring camp behind him already, and he's he's building that chemistry with receivers, is there a version of this where, hey, the Beaver offense, it's got a great offensive line, it's got a great, great running game, not a ton will be asked of, of DJU. It could be gangbusters right out of the gate, and they could be you know ranked in the top 15, maybe top 10 in the country just a few weeks in. Yeah, I think the situation is a little more conducive to a hot start than, uh, you know, maybe breaking in a, a new starter who's been in your system. And it's it's kind of interesting because obviously DJ's only been here for, for six months. But um, this is a guy who did his research on the Oregon State playbook before he even committed to Oregon State. I mean, you know, his knowledge of the system was uh, was the primary reason why he even contacted the Beavers uh, from what he said uh, during the spring. And so you know, he already knows the kind of system he's getting into. He's been learning the playbook since he got here day one in, in January. Um, a, a quick learner, a guy who has five-star skills, I, I don't think it's going to take him much time to get rolling. I, I think once you give him another month of practice, um, you know, you're going to see him really tap into that potential. Obviously, you don't know. You know, there's no guarantee of that. Um, but I think if there's a guy who's capable of taking the reins right away and, and getting things firing pretty quickly, it's a former four-star or a former five-star guy who's who's very intelligent as well. I just think about what the Beavers' ceiling could be if DJ is completely unlocked, and I get excited to think about it, man. As someone that roots for both teams in this state, like I don't know, I, I think Oregon State's got a pretty high ceiling, like. Sniffing, sniffing Vegas, maybe sniffing the, the college football playoff if DJU is the kind of DJU that he was thought to be coming out of high school. And, and if that ceiling is attainable under this offense with this scheme, it could be a special year in, in Corvallis. And it's fair to you know hypothesize these best-case scenarios because you know, obviously I think last year was somewhat of a best-case scenario for, for Oregon State. You know they, they made things happen. But at the same time, you know, Oregon State fans, I think, to an extent, do need to temper their expectations a bit. You know, we, we mentioned the questions on the defensive side. There's a real chance that Oregon State regresses significantly on that side. And what if DJ doesn't turn the offense into a juggernaut? You know, these are not guarantees. Uh, there's a reason that Oregon State uh, is coming off of its third 10-win season of all time. You know, Oregon State's not a program that traditionally sustains success um, this is the next step for Jonathan Smith, is proving that you can repeat 
as a Pac-12 contender year after year. Um, and until he proves it, you can't expect it. So, um, you know, I, I think Oregon State could win eight or nine games, and in some ways it would still be considered a success. But if you go into the year with expectations of winning 10, 11 games and competing for a Pac-12 title, um, you know, you may be setting yourself up for a little bit of disappointment. But I do think that that, that is a very realistic outcome for this team, uh, particularly given the, the, you know, the schedule. I think it lines up well. Um, the, the veteran presence on the offensive side. Um, there are a lot of factors playing uh, in, in their favor. But again, you, you got to temper expectations a little bit until they prove that they can win 10 games back-to-back for the first time in program history. 10 wins is hard, man. You know, it's 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 a hard thing to do in college football, especially if you're not, you know, an annual blue blood. I, I totally agree with you because 10 wins is like one of the most sexy things to say about your program. It's going to be the first lead on every story written about your program in the offseason. Beavers coming off a 10-win season, 10-win season. can they do it again? And it's almost like, man, let's not forget, like, we got really fortunate to win at Stanford, you know, in those circumstances. Um, Could have won the USC game, I guess. I I would grant you that as well. But fortunate to be able to beat the Ducks after being down by that margin and simply running the football with a quarterback that completed six passes and threw two picks. Like, that's pretty fortunate as well. Crushed a Florida team that had half of their very good players, including a quarterback who was the fourth pick in the NFL draft. Like, yeah, some things broke the Beavers' way, but I guess to your point, Carter, that's why you go out and you bring in a an A-level quarterback, or at least a quarterback with A potential in DJ Uyunglele. It feels like the stakes are kind of raised for Oregon State this year, coming off a 10-win season. So even getting a 9-win season out of the, this coming year, I still think is a massive success because you've, you've raised the bar. You've raised the stakes. Now you're trying to do it again as a program that's being hunted rather than a program that's often the hunter of, of the other programs around your conference. Yeah, and I mean, there's very little difference between winning 10 games and winning 7 games in the Pac-12. You know, It's been a conference for, for so long that you know we, we use the buzzword parody to describe it, but there is a, a lot of similarities among your top teams. I mean, I, I think you could very easily pick any of the top five teams to win the conference, and um, you're not going to receive a whole lot of pushback. Like, or, Oregon State's always a team that's going to live on the margins. Uh, you know, this is a team that's that's probably not going to win, you know, a boatload of blowouts every year. Uh, even in its best years, you know, it's, it's going to take some gritty wins. It's going to take those wins against Stanford, those com- comebacks against Oregon, because – Oregon State is not a team, uh, as, as we all know, that that fields a bunch of four and five star talent every year. You know, you, you're relying on on out coaching and uh, you know a, a myriad of other factors to to edge out some of these games. Uh, and and when you live on the margin like that, um, you know, you have a chance to to go seven and five or or ten and two uh, if. You know, if if one thing breaks your way or the other. And I think we saw that last year with Oregon State getting a lot of breaks. Carter Baines joining us for a moment or two more. Um, Got some big non-conference crossover games in the Pac-12 this year. Uh, Week two, you know, uh, stands out for sure. You've got Oregon going to Texas Tech. You've got a few other big games on the card. Wisconsin traveling to Washington State on the Palouse. Luke Fickle coming to, to Pullman is is awesome. You've got the Nebraska-Colorado game. 
Utah visiting Baylor, Arizona and Mississippi State's got some intrigue this year. Uh, Oklahoma State and Arizona State. You never know. Auburn and Cal is in that week two slot. I mean, there's a there's a bevy of non-conference games, you know, before the Pac-12 uh, schedule gets going. And each and every year, Carter, we say, hey, can we fare well as a conference in those non-conference games? Because it really does feel like your conference perception um, is, for better or for worse, it is a result of how well you do against competition out of the other Power Fives. Yeah, and I think the Pac-12 matches up really well against a lot of its non-conference opponents this year. And, and some of the bigger ones, you know, playing those SEC teams, a lot of those are played on Pac-12 turf. I mean, Utah welcomes Florida. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Auburn goes to Berkeley to play Cal. Yep. Um, you know, these these are big spots for the Pac-12. It's, it's not every year that you see multiple Pac-12 versus SEC showdowns. And to get them out here on the West Coast, uh, and, and in Salt Lake City, you know, that's that's big. Um, we've seen the Pac-12 go toe-to-toe against power conferences in recent years. You know, you can go back to Washington meeting Michigan State last year, obviously in a down year for the Spartans. But at the time, it looked like a great win for the Huskies. Um, and, you know, you can go down the line uh, with, with a handful of these games in recent years. Like this is, you know, if you're talking about the Pac-12 staying relevant in a post-USC-UCLA world, winning in the postseason and winning these non-conference games is genuinely the best way to gain respect because you're going head-to-head against teams from other conferences. And so I think if ever there was a year for the Pac-12 to, to have a strong showing in the first three weeks of the season, it's it's right now. You know, when your conference reputation is on the line, when people outside of the conference footprint kind of scoff at you, um, you know, now's the time to, I, I think, silence some of the doubters and prove that, hey, just because the Trojans and Bruins aren't going to be here next year, that doesn't mean that the Pac-12 can't compete with the sports best. You feel like the Pac-12, Big 12 matchups this year will carry a special kind of juice, given all the back and forth, and I'm circling that Oregon-Texas Tech game in particular. I think there's some truth to that, and, you know, that Oregon-Texas Tech game is, is one that I've had circled uh, as well, I've, I've promoted that as one of the best non-conference games of, of the entire season. I, I just love the matchup there between Tyler Shuck playing against his former team. You've got a Texas Tech team in the Big 12 that I don't think anybody is talking about. That might be the best. I, I, that might be the best pick to be your next TCU. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're going to have a team that's that's going to run through a season and, and win a bunch of games that nobody expects, I think Texas Tech has that chance here. Um, you know, to, to surprise some people. That game's in Lubbock. That's a sneakily very difficult place to play. Um, you know, I, I think it's a trap spot for Oregon, and if they can, if they can survive that one, um, you know, that's that's going to be an impressive mark on their resume come the end of the year. I think. Yeah, Chuck is a good player when he's healthy. Like that's people forget. Like he is a really good player when he when he stays healthy. He'll be all kinds of motivated in that one. Uh, last thing for you, Carter, you know, the, this Northwestern stuff, and it's got a bit of a, a local tie-in because Michael Schill, the former University of Oregon president, is at Northwestern and less than a year on the job, and he's kind of in the middle of this. But just generally, what what do you make of this Pat Fitzgerald firing and the process? It's it's kind of a fiasco over there, and I know it's getting a lot of run in Chicagoland and Big Ten country and nationally. Yeah, came out of nowhere for sure. You know, it's it's just unfortunate, really, um, to see a figure of university in, in 
Pat Fitzgerald's case, you know, his his reputation come crashing down in the span of just a couple of days. And, you know, I, I think Michael Schill put it best uh, in in his statement when he announced the firing. You know, it's the head coach's responsibility to know what's going on in his program and, and whether or not it's fair to, you know, to put all of the blame on him. Um, you know, I, I think you can have that debate, but there is certainly an element to that where, you know, if, if you're not in touch with your program, what does that say about your leadership qualities? Um, and, you know, I'm not qualified to speak on Pat Fitzgerald's knowledge of the situation, um, but I do think Michael Schill was put in a tough situation. And, you know, obviously, um, University of Oregon folks are familiar with him and, and whatnot, but um, it's it, it's just a tough situation all around. You know, I, I feel for the program. Um, it's it's not in a good place right now, and it loses its head coach. It loses a figure of its of its program, of its university, um, and and all around, obviously, just not not a good look for the program to to deal with this sort of scandal. So, um, it's it's going to be a long road ahead for Northwestern. Uh, I hope they get this higher right because um, obviously they're struggling right now. What's next for you on the horizon uh, with two four seven? What are you looking at? What will you be working on as more and more media days unfold this month. Yeah, that's it. Media days is, is going to rule the month of July. I'm excited for August to roll around when, when fall camp coverage uh, starts getting going. Man, we rely on our network of team sites. Uh, BeaverBlitz.com does a great job uh, for, for Oregon State Duck Territory, holding it down for Oregon and Eugene. Um, you know, head to, head to those sites during fall camp. Uh, they'll be on the ground providing coverage, and we're going to promote all sorts of that stuff nationally as these storylines blossom in the lead-up to the season. Carter Baines, editor nationally, 247 Sports. It's great to get caught up with you, Carter. Thanks for being generous with your time and talking a little college football, indulging me in the middle of July. I appreciate it, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Judah. There he is, Carter Baines, 247 Sports. Never a bad time to unpack the uh, the bag that is college football. 503-417-7575 if you've got a college football take that you want to get off your chest as well. Uh, we've got Pac-12 Media Days coming up on Friday, July 21st. John Kazana will be there in Vegas broadcasting live, and we'll have all the head coaches, the quarterbacks, everybody that cycles through on a uh, regular basis on a Pac-12 Media Day will be right here on the radio show on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. I've got more to unpack out of that conversation with Carter that we'll get to. Also more on the Damian Lillard front. A few new uh, articles put out today. A few new tweets out there as well um, from anonymous accounts, which you got to give them credence. It's July 12th. Who else are we going to give credence to? Someone reputable? I mean, dare we? Uh, Zach Lowe also had a good piece on ESPN+. Plus contextualizing how we got to this point with Damian Lillard and the Blazers. Want to get to all of that and more, plus Punch It Audio, the 5 at 5, taking you up to 6 o'clock here in the Portland area. You'll get Portland Timbers soccer at 6 as they start the second half of their game with Colorado Rapids that was abandoned uh, midway through from July 4th. Judah Newby in for John Canzano on the Bold Face Truth. That Texas Tech game week two is going to be a tricky one for Oregon, without question. I We're talking with uh, Carter Baines a moment ago for 247 Sports. Thanks to Carter for joining the show. Spencer McLaughlin in hour one from uh, Locked On Pac-12 Podcast. So college football heavy today, but wouldn't want it 
any other way. Nubian for Kazano today on the BFT. And Tyler Shuck, I, I know D Duck fans, I don't know how Duck fans feel about Tyler Shuck, actually, because I've heard various things. Um, You know, the fact that the 2020 season was just a weird one, okay? The COVID stuff, we didn't even play our first football game till November 7th, I think. And Oregon played Stanford. We were the last conference to get football going. And um, Shuck was really good. I think Oregon won that game like 35-14. He had, you know, like two, maybe three touchdowns, a couple of rushing scores. He was dynamite with his legs, looked good with his arm. He had family ties to uh, Oregon and Oregon State, and he just seemed to be like the next guy, right? The the uh, four-star out of the state of Arizona. He was going to be the next Oregon quarterback. And, you know, they won at Washington State, and it was kind of a crazy game. And But for whatever reason, and, and we're talking about like a you know, five- or six-game season where you ended up playing in a Fiesta Bowl at the end of it against Iowa State. But there was that, and there there was the Anthony Brown tension, and it looked like the offense was looking better with Anthony Brown in there than it was with Tyler Shuck. And now thinking about the way that Duck fans feel about Anthony Brown just makes me smile. Like, I mean, was it better with, with Shuck than, than Brown long-term? I don't know. But the fact that, you know, Mario Cristobal and Marcus Arroyo went to Anthony Brown in high-leverage spots like, you know, the Pac-12 title game, and um, and uh, the Fiesta Bowl as well kind of tells you all that you needed to know in the Civil War with, with uh, Oregon State, although Shuck, um, you know, played most of that Civil War game that Oregon State ended up winning at Reeser Stadium. The fact that they started going to Anthony Brown in those high-leverage spots, and then next thing you know, Tyler Shuck is transferring, and he's going to Texas Tech. And this is already going to be the third year that Shuck is at Texas Tech, and he got hurt, I think, early in his first year. Then his second year, he comes into Lubbock. He's going to be a starter. He gets hurt early again, and he broke his clavicle, I think, in both instances. Uh, kind of landed awkwardly and kind of fractured his clavicle in back-to-back -back seasons early in Lubbock. And then last year, their backup gets hurt. Shuck comes back in in late October, early November, and starts shining. Healthy, offense is flying. You know, Texas Tech is not a team that got on, you know, the national primetime stage a whole heck of a lot, but they gave TCU quite a battle. Obviously, TCU, the national runners-up. Um, you know, they gave a lot of teams a, a quite a battle. They go to a bowl game, and they look great against Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss. Shuck, you know, runs for a whole, over 100 yards in that game. He's like the first Texas Tech quarterback since like 1971 to have over 100 yards rushing in a game. I kid you not. I kid you not. Apparently, they just don't have running quarterbacks at Texas Tech. Um, you know, Mahomes never ran, ran for 100 uh, in, in that in that offense. Uh, so, I don't know. I just would caution Oregon fans, and I'm not saying that Oregon won't be favored. I'm not saying that Oregon won't win that game. I'm just cautioning Oregon fans a little bit that, you get high aspirations for a season, and you should. Expectations should be high. The talent is ridiculous. The uh, offensive coordinator, even though he's new, he's got a great reputation from UTSA. 
most importantly, you got your quarterback back for like his fifth or sixth year of college football already, going back to uh, 2019. Doing a little bit of math, I guess that would be his fifth year of college football, Bo Nix. And, you know, you, you should have high expectations for your program, but the only way that those expectations are realized is if you take care of business. And I think if you're a Duck fan, the first games you think about on your schedule, maybe every year, but certainly this year, it's Washington and Oregon State. Biggest rivals, lost to both of them. That, sure as hell, can't happen again. Otherwise, we'll have to have a different conversation. Start to sound like Damian Lillard. We're going to have to have a different conversation if that happens. But before you can even get to that point, you got to take care of your non-conference business. Last year, it was all the talk was the Georgia game. Dan Lanning against his former team, week one, right out of the gate. The point spread was 17, 17 and a half. If you're a Duck fan, you thought, "Ah, that's too much. We're going to keep it a one-score game. We'll be fine. These guys will be overconfident. Georgia will be overconfident. Lanning knows all about Georgia. And turns out it was the other way around. Or Georgia knew all about Oregon because of the defensive scheme and everything. And it was the furthest thing from mature uh, for Oregon from a football standpoint. You had Christian Gonzalez in his first game. He he played okay, but he he got got, as the kids say, a couple of times outside trying to contain leverage in the run game. And, um, you know, Georgia's Georgia. Like, 49-3, to, to three, it sounds, it, it's it's bad. It's really, really bad. I can't pretend that it's not. But it definitely looks worse than I think it, it probably could have been because Oregon hung in that game a little bit. Believe it or not, they hung in the first quarter. They were moving the ball. They just had a couple of punts in, in plus territory, and then the Bo Nix interception down the sideline that was picked off by Malachi Starks. It was not a great ball by Bo Nix. Uh, you know, he, not one of his better deep balls on the year. And then the interception to Christopher Smith, who was just playing, you know, zone zone coverage, just steps right in front of a Terrence Ferguson route, picks it off. Like, it's a bad pick by Bo. It's a bad pick. You know, but then he obviously got his stride, and he started playing like one of the best players in college football for the rest of the year until he got hurt in the UW game. And that injury, you know, really changed everything. Oregon had this long drive going. They were killing the clock. They were about to score a touchdown and really put that one away. This is after Michael Penix, and Duck fans, I'm, I'm sorry for bringing it up, but in case... You forgot Michael Penix gifted you the ball at the goal line on a roll out to the right, tried to fit it into a window, into the end zone. Ball got batted up in the air because there was a duck defender right there. And uh, I think it was Noah Sewell was able to come up with the interception in the end. Just a gifted turnover to Oregon. And they go on this long drive, and the Knicks kind of gets banged up. Obviously, the ankle and the, the foot, the calf, the knee, whatever it was probably the ankle. And that really changes Oregon's season because they let it change their season. You know, they weren't prepared with a, enough of a Ty Thompson presence or package, and I guess you can't blame them, but it's a really hard spot to put a guy like that. So you settle for the field goal. Washington goes down and scores to capitalize. You try to go for it on fourth down in your own territory because you don't want to give the ball back to those guys, but you know, you slip. Noah Whittington slips on the on the uh, on the give, 
Washington gets it back, bangs home the field goal, ties the game, wins the thing in overtime. Um, you know, that's that's a tough spot to be if you're Oregon. And that's why so much of their season, and it's a tough thing to say and tough thing to think about, but so much of anyone's season is on the health of the quarterback. But I think Oregon, maybe more than any other Pac-12 contender, in order to win this conference, Bonex has to be healthy. Just has to be. Has to be healthy and obviously has to perform at a high level. And if he if he is healthy and performing at a high level, I think Oregon wins <laughs> wins the Pac-12. Like they've got that potential without question. But if he goes down at any point, I think expectations, and rightfully so, will have to shift and, and shift in a pretty big way. 503-417-7575. Uh, we'll take some of your calls on college football or anything you want to talk about on the show. Feel free to do that. Bounce to break and come back. Newbie in for Gonzano right here on the Bold Face Truth. Is everyone like me where if you've been in the dark for a while or if you've been in a room that doesn't have many lights on or any lights on and then you go outside and the sun hits you just right, like you are, you're, you're, you're a sneeze machine for at least 20 seconds. Well, maybe 15 seconds, but... Uh, that's happened to me and my wife makes fun of me all the time, uh, you know, for, for being that guy that can't even get a whiff of the sun without sneezing. And I always say to her, I'm like, that's, that's what everybody, that's what happens to everybody. You can't look at the sun without sneezing. Like you sneeze at the sun. That's the way the human body is wired. It just happened to me a second ago. I'm in a darker studio, but I'm seeing downtown Portland, um, you know, seeing the Southwest Hills. I look outside, look out my beautiful window. The sun gets me just right. A couple sneezes come out. And I was like, dang it, I can't even help myself. But I want to say that happens to everybody. But uh, now my wife's gotten me wondering if it's just not uh, something that makes me peculiar. Which wouldn't be the only time she has said that. And for good reason. Uh, very, very lucky to uh, to have my wife. That's for sure. 503-417-7575. So... We've talked a little ball with Spencer McLaughlin. Talked a little ball with uh, Carter Baines as well. Those will be on the podcast uh, if you missed any of those conversations with those two uh, fine gentlemen talking Ducks, Beavs, Pac-12, etc. I wanted to get to this as well. It was Big 12 Media Days, and our uh, very good friend, Brett Yormark, doing his thing, uh, banging his chest, being a suave speaker, selling some used cars on the side. You know, You know how Brett does, the exceptional leader that he is. I don't know. Maybe the animosity is unfair, um, but I, I need someone to root against in, in leadership. Last year it was Kevin Warren because of all the backstabbing. So now it's Brett Yormark. Now that Warren is already gone to the Chicago Bears, uh, Brett Yormark's uh, the new public enemy. So I got to do it. But he gave his uh, his opening uh, comments at Big 12 Media Days. They happened at Jerry World. Of course they did. And uh, he was asked about trying to protect the Big 12 footprint from other conferences, potentially uh, trying to poach him. This is what he had to say. This thing is ever-changing. So what are you doing to protect the Big 12 footprint? Well, we've identified certain championships, as I said in my earlier comments, starting here uh, in the DFW marketplace, doubling down with AT&T is critically important for us. It's an aspirational venue. But we're also going to double down in baseball and and, and softball and the key sports that are important you know to the conference um, and and we're doing that and you know it is a competitive landscape now you know the uh, parts of our geographic footprint 
and um, we, we've got to do what we need to do to protect our turf. And I always found it interesting, and, and this kind of comes back to where the Pac-12 is with possible expansion, is how SMU fits into all this. Because, you know, if I'm Brett Yormar, and obviously the Big 12 is expanding by four teams, you had BYU at Big 12 Media Day today. Just like, all right, wrapping my head around that. Uh, UCF, Houston, Dana Holgerson back in that conference as well after being at uh, West Virginia for a long time in the Big 12. Now he's back in it with the Houston Cougars. Um, and But I, I think about SMU, and it's like, man, if you prioritize the FDW market or DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth, if you prioritize that market, like where would SMU fit into all that? And obviously there's a long history with SMU football and the Southwest Conference, you know, the previous iteration to the Big 12, and, you know, Marcus Dupree and the death penalty that that, uh, that came on SMU and everything, but it was once a proud football institution, a power institution, obviously in the middle of some of the most talented high school football in the country. And I just think about the fact that, like, is there any version of this where, you know, SMU and the Big 12 could put their differences aside and bring them back into their conference? Because it makes a lot of sense, especially with Texas and Oklahoma leaving. And you hear Brett Yormark say, hey, we prioritize the Dallas-Fort Worth market, uh, both with re-up and with AT&T Stadium and the other sports like baseball and softball. And, you know, to me, I was like, look, we're in a day and age where you got to you remember your history with SMU, but you also got to kind of like put your swords down like, if you're the Big 12, just welcome them back to the conference if you want. That makes a lot of sense. It's a program on the rise, even in basketball, which is something that your mark appears to care a lot about. SMU's getting into the tournament every now and then. They were a six seed uh, not too long ago. Like they've got, they've got some stuff to build from, but at the same time, it doesn't seem like that is going to happen. And I wonder, I wonder if some of Brett Yormark's kind of reservedness when talking about the Dallas-Fort Worth market there in that response today is because he already knows that the hay is in the barn and that SMU is coming to the Pac-12. Maybe he already knows that and just doesn't want to publicly wave the white flag on that. You know, and I might be reading into it too much because obviously the Pac-12 hasn't announced any expansion. They haven't even announced a media rights deal, but we saw George go and visit SMU. You know, he was present. He was talking to some of the SMU Decision makers, John Cazano has been doing a great job reporting on johncazano.com about SMU's attitude and approach and uh, and overall um, hopes to maybe get in the Pac-12 as well. And if they do, if they do, I think it's a program you have to take seriously because you're talking about some deep, deep pockets at SMU and their uh, their collective. Um, I mean, according to Cazano, I mean it's a collective that's got. It's got pockets that can rival Division Street, you know. Maybe not quite one-for-one one Phil Knight money, but not as far behind as you would think. Like, they they got money and they can play. And uh, I think it would be great for the Pac-12 brand-wise to, to welcome in SMU. Like, I'd be more excited about SMU than San Diego State. And I know San Diego State's getting all the buzz. And uh, beautiful new stadium down there at San Diego State. But SMU, to me... As a fan of football on the West Coast, I think would be a a bigger value add from a football standpoint than uh, San Diego State would be, even though having both of them would be great. Now, th- layered amidst all of that is 
you know, Dan Patrick, who we love. You know, I know uh, Dan's down on, on in the mornings on Eugene Sports Radio. Shout out Eugene, part of the BFT Radio Network, uh, K-O-R-E, Fox Sports Eugene. And uh, we've got him here on the BFT Radio Network flagship here on 750 The Game. And, and Dan's got a source that's talking to him. And Dan was on vacation for a while, but he's plugged into this stuff. And, uh, you know, he gave an update of sorts on the latest of what he knew about San Diego State and SMU. And he says, hey, even though San Diego State, you know, rescinded their withdrawal or whatever they did with the Mountain West because of the June 30th deadline, he says it's still going to happen. San Diego State and SMU will wind up in the Pac-12. But that's the information I have on the Pac-12. It still feels like San Diego State is going to the Pac-12. SMU will be going to the Pac-12. Boise State, I guess, is a chance. Uh, It was referred to me as a long shot. But uh, my source said, I said, is it a long shot? And he goes, well, it's questionable. And I said, what about UNLV? He goes, questionable, but they may be looking to add four schools here. They're going to add two, but do you add two more? And do you bring in UNLV? And do you bring in Boise State? Those are just some of the things that have been, uh, I guess, behind the scenes transpiring here since San Diego State uh, opted out of the Mountain West. And a lot of people looked at that and said, boy, they made a mistake there. No, they know what they're doing. I think they thought that the Pac-12 was going to embrace them and say, come on in, San Diego State. They're still waiting to get it. Why is it the Live Tour can get a TV deal and the <laughs> Pac-12 can't get a TV deal? Like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Well, touche. <laughs> touche to that, DP. Touche. A four-team expansion? I don't know. I don't know if uh, if the Pac-12 will go there. But it was encouraging to hear. And look, I know Dan, you know, he's obviously, he's got a guy that's talking to him. And it, it was still encouraging that the message Dan was receiving earlier this week was, hey, just give it time. San Diego State and SMU to the Pac-12 is still, still probably going to happen. So... I don't know. That at least encouraged me. And then the other layer on top of that was it might not just be two-team expansion. It might be four-team expansion with Boise State and UNLV. And I don't know. The more I think about it, the more I think I can, I, I can get behind that a little bit, especially getting that Vegas you know, presence that you already have with your conference championship games. Why not just add in a layer of a local team there too? Something to think about. Boise State makes some sense as well. I don't know about the academic piece to all of that. That seems to be the thing that holds anything up is what the Pac-12 CEO group actually thinks and how it differs from what the hell the rest of us think. Uh, that's a four o'clock hour. Five and five is coming up to start a five o'clock hour on the bold face truth. Big final hour in front of us. 503-417-7575. You want to chime in? Talked a lot of uh, college football today Had big 12 media today. Getting a little uh, Brett Yormark, got Sark talking, Mike Gundy talking. Going to be losing the uh, rivalry with Oklahoma, with them going to the SEC next year. Already talked with uh, Spencer McLaughlin, Locked On Pac-12 and the Locked On Oregon Ducks podcasts. Had a wide range of conversation with Spencer and all things related to the conference and the Oregon Ducks, including trying to get a feel of what to expect from a Wilstein offense this fall. And uh, I think we can all agree that if Bonix is healthy, I feel like there's enough pieces around him, especially at the receiver position. 
and the offensive line should still be strong, even though there's some moving parts there, that this Oregon offense should fly the way that it flew much of 2022. And if they're flying, and if Bo doesn't get banged up, which I think is probably the biggest question of his 2023 season, sky's the limit. And then at Oregon State, sky's the limit if DJ is that dude. If DJ is five-star DJ, St. John Bosco DJ, and it all clicks for him. Now, that's just athletically. Put him in an offense that Jonathan Smith and Brian Lindgren have put together that demands a lot of the quarterback mentally. If he can get there with the mental game, in addition to his physical skill set, said that Oregon had a high ceiling with their quarterback. I think Oregon State's got just as high a ceiling. Is that crazy to say? I don't think so. I think things uh, things are that high in Corvallis. Now, uh, appreciate Spencer McLaughlin coming on and Carter Baines as well from uh, 247 Sports. He's now a national editor at 247, but of course uh, spent a while covering the Beavs specifically. So we got our Ducks takes, we got our uh, Beavs takes, our Pac-12 takes, and I'm curious your takes. At 503-417-7575, you can also tweet at 750thegame and at Judith Newby. Uh, Portland Timbers soccer, the restart of their game against Colorado Rapids. That's coming your way here in Portland at uh, 6 o'clock. It will be the second half of the action, Timbers and Rapids, because uh, this game originally was scheduled for the 4th of July. They got through one half, had severe weather, couldn't finish the thing, said, let's pack it up, let's go home, let's, uh, let's take the abandoned title, and we'll restart this thing here. And a following week. So that's what we're doing right now. We're going to restart Timbers and Rapids coming up in just about an hour's time from just outside of Denver. And you'll hear all the play-by-play on 750 The Game flagship of the uh, BFT radio network. In the meantime, a lot to get to in this final hour. So let's start it off. Let's start with the 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. Well, they talk about Big 12 Media Day, and of course, the commissioner, Brett Yormark, got you one audio cut in the uh, the previous segment. Let's keep talking about it. And Brett Yormark always has something to say on expansion, right? Where does he sit right now with possible Big 12 expansion? Punch it. You wanted to ask you, in terms of BYU being on the western flank of this conference, do you have hopes to find another broadcast partner out in the mountain or Pacific time zones at some point? Another broadcast partner? Or, excuse me, not another institution i guess to pair with byu in that late tv window well first of all you know we love byu excited about them coming into the conference they bring a different time zone obviously which is great for us we're the only conference in america that's in three time zones um but right now i mean there's there's nothing on the board i mean again you know we'll, we'll explore all options but uh until that point we love the current makeup and and we're excited about it but thank you for the questions uh, yes, yeah, so you got BYU coming to the Big 12, Houston uh, joining them, UCF among the additions as well. And then, of course, Brett Yomark is always thinking about coming uh, coming west in Cincinnati. I forgot Cincinnati. Cincinnati's coming there as well. So 14 members of the Big 12 this year. And then it will be back to 12 when Oklahoma and Texas go to the SEC in 2012, or uh, 2024, I should say. So, you know, Yarmark always says, hey, like, we're not going to turn our nose up at anybody that wants to be part of our conference, but we're also not going to, you know, 
outstep our bounds and do something that's out of alignment for the Big 12. But I, I think Brett Yormark would love nothing more than to take another Pac-12 school or two, especially when OU and Texas leave. But he said, he said today, hey, he's not here to compete with any other Power Five. From my perspective, and I've said this before, I'm not really competing with the other Power Five conferences. You know, I want the Big 12 to be the best version of ourselves. And if we can do that, we're in a great place. So it's not about ranking us within the Power Five. But I can tell you this, there's been no better time to be a part of the Big 12 than right now. And um, this thing is going to grow. It's going to move forward in a positive way. And I'm really excited about our future. Well, there you go. I think the Pac-12, it's within their best interest to keep this thing together and to keep the train moving forward and to do so quickly. But yet, I still... Where would you put the betting line on if a media rights deal is announced and the uh, the over-under is July 21st, which is media day like wouldn't you want to have something by by media day is that too much to ask but you're right as Spencer McLaughlin said in hour one I'm not going to be Charlie Brown with Lucy holding the football again not happening just wake me up when September ends meaning wake me up when it's over so we can get to it and see what the final result is uh, number two, we had the MLB All-Star Game last night. 3-2 National League wins for the first time in nearly a decade. Uh, it was still a lot of fun. You had Vlad Guerrero Jr. winning the Home Run Derby. And then, of course, the National League winning the 93rd edition of the All-Star Game at T-Mobile Park to snap a nine-game losing streak. Good for the National League. 3-2 the final. These games leave a little something to be desired in terms of you know, how they look like and how they feel. But at least for me, highlight of the week had to have been Adley Rutschman switching sides to the plate and dazzling at the home run derby. In Major League Baseball, and how about this? No way. Adley Rutschman will go from the no white way. side. He just blasted 21. The switch hitter turns around. Start showing off. first one goes. Start showing off. Adley Rutschman knew something, boys. He should get double points for this. Is he six for six? Oh, Oh my goodness. goodness. (laughs) That one did not go. Adley Rutschman. Did he go seven of eight in that final round? Yes, he did. 30 seconds, seven of eight from the right side. I thought that was awesome. A little bit of uh, showmanship and a little bit of uh, confidence and swagger to go from the left side to the right side and then oh nothing, just start cranking bombs with his dad, Randy, pitching to him and Obviously, Oregon State knows what Adley means to that community. The the Rutschman name in the Willamette Valley. It's a legendary, legendary name with all that Ad Rutschman did at Linfield and elsewhere. And it's just really, really cool to see Adley thrive on that stage, even though he didn't get out of the first round. But still, he had his moment. And for me, that was one of the top moments in uh, 
in All-Star Week in Seattle. The Northwestern fiasco is exactly that, a fiasco. Michael Wilbon went to Northwestern. Long time. Reasonable voice in media. I still love PTI. I think for all the changes that ESPN goes through, Kornheiser and Wilbon, for me, and I know a lot of people, I don't know where people sit on this, actually, but I, I actually think that they still come out on the more reasonable side of debate than your other debate shows out there. I think PTI is a tried and true show and format that still works. Uh, Wilbon was on ESPN 1000 WMVP in Chicago talking about everything going on with Michael Schill, Northwestern, Pat Fitzgerald. Let's put a time limit. Indefinite suspension. I said, this, you know, with Ime Udoka, indefinite suspension while it is studied. Now, it had already been studied. You know, the two-week period was not good enough. Michael, was President Schill uh, aware of all of the details? That I can't say what he was aware of. I, I can just tell you that. Um, I have, part, part of my view is this, is being inside the process. President Schill's new. Mm-hmm. Like, like the music from his inauguration at Northwestern as our president succeeding Morty Shapiro, the strains of the music having died down. It, he's new, brand new. And so you walk into this, you, no one's prepared, really. You, you, you can have all the kinds of emergency training you want. Nobody's prepared to walk in where a school that hasn't needed to hire a football coach in 15 years. More than that, because it's been since you go back to hiring Randy Walker, I guess. It's a tough spot for Northwestern to be, but Wilbon hit on something with Michael Schill. And yesterday I you know, I ranted about this and it just felt it felt weird that Schill would handle this the way that he did. Because during his time at Oregon, when he was he was not just the president, he was the chair of the CEO group. You know, he was the one introducing George Klyovkov. He was the one that did a dual interview. On this radio show, first interview he did, him and Klyovkov with Kanzano at the same time. Like, this guy is not just competent. Like, he was considered to be on the forefront of of, prevident, of, uh, of presidents at major universities, and certainly academically so. And I think that's part of the reason why he ended up at Northwestern and left Oregon uh, was for the academic side of things. But... I was surprised to see that it was a two-week suspension initially for Fitzgerald in the middle of summer with nothing going on. So it's it's really it's not much of a suspension. As far as suspensions go, it's like the least penal of any suspension you could give. Then, and by the way, the investigation they conducted is over at this point. They have all the evidence they need. And then Michael Schill went from two-week suspension in the middle of summer to full-on firing. What? What happened? And again, I I agree with what everybody else has said. I'm not one to say whether or not the firing is the right decision or the wrong decision. Like, I'm inclined to think it's the right decision, but at the same time, then why in the hell did you give him a two-week suspension in the middle of summer in the first place? It's just weird. It's weird to me, and I... I, Michael Schill came across as a lot more competent and, and knowledgeable and knowing what he was doing than to allow kind of the mess that's on his hands now, even though... He's trying to to walk it back as much as possible. Uh, number three, it's another day, which means it's another, you know, day of tracking down the Blazers, Miami, Dame, all the rumors going on out there. The uh, GM of the Nets, Sean Marks, this is interesting. He was on with Sirius XM Radio and Frank Isola was hosting, and 
he uh, expressed a little bit of sympathy of what Joe Cronin is going through with a star asking out because this is very similar to what KD did in Brooklyn uh, last year. Last season, you had the uh, situation with Kevin Durant, very similar to what's going on in Portland right now. And the fans, and they want everything to happen so quickly. How difficult is it for you to take a step back and say, if we're going to make a deal, we have to make the best deal for ourselves. We can't, we can't do it because the media wants us to do it or the fans want us to do it. Just the pressure of that, those first initial days and yeah. weeks. Well, there's a lot of noise out there, you know, and, and um, I, I certainly understand what you know Portland is going through right now, what Joe's going through right now. I mean, we, we've we've had to go through that the last the last year. Um, it's not easy, but I think you, you, to your point, Frank, you have to look at it and say, okay, what's the best thing for the franchise moving forward? Um, y- you know, and I think it's never quite as bad as what people make it out to be, and it's never probably as good as what, you know, you know the, uh, the media or speculation makes out to be, too. You know what's going on inside your house, and you manage that, and I think that's, that's what we've managed to do through, through thick and thin and, you know, being very transparent with our ownership group and, and, and Joe and the support that Joe and Clara have given us throughout this. And, and now we build in our own way, and, uh, you know, uh, we'll have to wait and see how Portland goes about this and how they build. Zach Lowe and Kevin Pelton had some more comments that I want to play a little bit later on in this hour on uh, Zach Lowe's podcast on this. And it's equal parts, like... A little bit of empathy for Cronin and also curiosity. How is he going to pull this off? How is he actually going to get a deal for Damian Lillard done that gets any modicum of adequate return value back for Portland? Because it's Damian Lillard, right? I mean, Cronin said it himself in his comments earlier this week. He's like, I mean, there isn't anybody like Dame out there. It's just hard. How do you replace Damian Lillard? You know, who is the person in the marketplace that is available that is a better player than Dame? And no team better, no team more than us knows what this market looks like. We've been trying for 18 months to find the Dame equivalent at another position or, you know, someone that's 80% of Dame even. So that's the challenge, and that's where we've got to keep working it. Got to keep working it, and apparently... They haven't lost hope. They can convince Dame to rescind the trade offer and just come back. I haven't lost hope just because I understand, you know, this league is complicated and things change, you know, very quickly. Sometimes, you know, it's we gain more information. Sometimes things aren't what we thought they were. And it's just something that in this league we constantly have to stay nimble and adjust to changing circumstances. And I, I view it like that, that I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what this will end up, what will end up happening here just knowing that I won't be surprised if something different happens than we were originally expecting. I got to give Cronin credit because he's saying all the right things to maintain whatever leverage he has. At least he still has it. He didn't put himself in the corner with anything he said publicly. He said, hey, I don't know what's going to happen. There's a chance that Dame is back. There's a chance this is a multi-team deal. There's a chance that this thing lasts months. Right? These are all the types of things that you want to say to still maintain your leverage. And uh, and Joe did it. And credit to him. I think he, he said all the right things this week. And frankly, as a Blazer fan, I kind of hope that it takes a long time. Because to me, that means that teams like Miami will get a little bit more desperate and will be willing to offer just a little bit more, another inch or two more that can help, you know, pacify what's already going to be a disappointing exit of one of the franchise's greatest players of all time. 
And number five in the uh, five at five. I'm really excited about this. I haven't had a Netflix account in a while. I'll be honest. Uh, but I'm going to get one back because they got this docu-series called Quarterback. Followed three quarterbacks predominantly over the course of last season. Kirk Cousins, Patrick Mahomes, and Mahalo Marcus, Marcus Mariota. And uh, there's a clip going around the Twitter sphere today of Mariota in one of the initial episodes of this docuseries on Netflix. When Atlanta came to Seattle, this was week three last year, Atlanta ended up winning the game. Mariota brought him, brought him back in the fourth quarter. But um, Mariota said it was really tough during practice that week because the Falcons ended up practicing at the Washington Huskies team facilities. And it was just great hearing Marcus talk about why that was so tough for him as a duck. To Seattle was actually the University of Washington. For people that don't really understand that, it's tough for an Oregon Duck to walk into a Washington Husky facility. Washington being our school rival was a little interesting for me for the week. Just saw the purple. Uh, it was... Uh. Exactly. the uh, All the purple, it's just... Uh, I can't stand it. All the purple. That's tough. But... He was able to channel it. it. It's really something you got to watch to get a great sense of because uh, Mariota's delivery and his distaste. You know, he's such a stoic guy, steady as they come guy, but you could really, it was palpable the distaste he had for uh, having to practice at Washington Huskies team facilities that week. And that's just one of the kind of behind the scenes moments that I'm sure are all throughout episode one of, uh, of that docuseries. So it's called Quarterback. It's on Netflix. It's really good. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but I've only seen the clips, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, if, if For those of you that are also like me and just like to nerd out on the NFL, there's also a podcast out there I've been listening to that I think is great. And frankly, it kind of ties into Jonathan Smith and Brian Lindgren a little bit, but it's called The Play Callers, and uh, it's from The Athletic. You know, one of the one of the podcasts I love listening to is The Athletic Football Show, Um and this week, it's an in-depth five-part podcast series that traces the origins of what's basically known as the Kyle Shanahan offense. And that's why it ties into Oregon State, because basically what Oregon State runs. Um, the fact that Kyle Shanahan and his dad, obviously just legend, Mike Shanahan, couple of Super Bowls with John Elway in his time, and everything that, you know, Kyle gleaned from his experience in Denver with Mike, the fact that Mike Shanahan did not hire Kyle Shanahan right out of the gate. He said, let somebody else hire you so you can learn all your NFL lessons the hard way without it reflecting too much on me. And Kyle did that. And then, you know, lo and behold, he ends up in Washington under Mike Shanahan with that RG3 offense. And who else is on that coaching staff? Sean McVay is on that coaching staff. Mike McDaniel is on that coaching staff. And uh, Matt LaFleur is on that coaching staff. And then all four of those guys end up becoming head coaches like they are today. Kyle in San Francisco in 2017. Sean McVay in L.A. Rams 2017. You know, Matt LaFleur follows Sean McVay to L.A., then gets the Green Bay gig in, I want to say, 2019 was his first year up there. And then, of course, Mike McDaniel, fresh off year one in Miami. And these are all kind of the young, hot-shot offensive coordinators in the NFL. And these guys, they fought with each other. 
and uh, bleeped each other out, expletives at one another daily, all the time. And, you know, I think of them as just being great friends and just being great minds. And, oh, of course, you know, they're, they're great. That's so much respect. But to get the behind-the-scenes stories of what it was like to shape the offense, and that's something that as a football fan I probably didn't, you know, hold in high enough regard is – I just think of the Shanahan offense being the Shanahan offense, you know, which makes it sound kind of static and it's not, it's anything, but the reason that the 49ers have had the success they've had independent of their quarterback is because of how hard Kyle Shanahan has worked to evolve each and every year. Same thing for Sean McVay, the offense he had to run with Matthew Stafford is a lot different than the offense that he got to run that got Todd Gurley into MVP consideration that got Jared Goff to a Super Bowl. And the fact that these guys are constantly tweaking, working and evolving to push the envelope for an offense that I'm like, Oh yeah, it's just your modern day outside zone play action offense. And that might be true to capture it in a general bucket. But what I've learned most from this just really great series and Jordan Rodriguez of the athletic is the one that created it and hosted it, narrated it, got these, Awesome in-depth conversations with Shanahan, McVay, LaFleur, McDaniel, Robert Sala, uh, a bunch of others. And it's just really insightful to give you a behind-the-scenes glimpse of just the amount of work that it takes for an NFL offense to function day in, day out, week in, week out, and then in the entire offseason after you have success, how to stay a step ahead. Because for the entire offseason, every defense in the NFL – is going to spend all their time pouring over your tape, pouring over the evidence that they have, and trying to figure out how you exploited the advantages you got and how to slow you down and stop it. And these guys are maniacs, dude. Coaches in the NFL are freaking maniacs. And, you know, it's a little, it can be a little scary sometimes. Sean McVay went to a dark place. Mike McDaniel went to a dark place. Shanahan went to a dark place. And um, they're consumed with their work. And it's even hard to have families when you're consumed that much with your work. And the stakes are just that high in the NFL. It's crazy. It's crazy. But it's really revealing and insightful. And as a football nerd myself, I I love it. So that's my recommendation to all of you. Uh, The Play Callers from uh, The Athletic uh, Podcast. But I'm also really interested to to watch this Netflix documentary on the Mariota and Kirk Cousins because... That's some behind-the-scenes stuff that really gets me fired up in the middle of July. I love it. Can football get here already? Uh, Bounce to break and come back. Uh, We'll get a little bit more in-depth on this Dame stuff. And uh, Albert Breer had some interesting comments on Bo Nix that we'll get to as well later in the show. Nubian for Kazano on the Bald Face Truth. Been a great show. Appreciate everybody being along for it. 503-417-7575. Look forward to uh, John Cazano being back later on in this week. Mentioned Zach Lowe's piece on ESPN+. Plus. Um, if you read it, you'll know what I'm talking about with uh, with details on, you know, kind of the context of how we got here with Portland and Lillard. And I think if you're a Blazer fan, you know how we got here. But sometimes it's it's helpful just to remember. And sometimes it's helpful, frankly, for someone with, the uh, the national stature of uh, of a Zach Lowe at ESPN, who's not a guy that's going to be, you know, you know, raging debate with Stephen A. Smith or anything like that, right? He's coming at it from a very NBA centric 
um, perspective, and frankly, not even a Woj, who's obviously consumed in the breaking news world. Like, Zach Lowe's going to come from a much more measured uh, perspective with depth and background and and, and um, putting together a piece that I think was really right on the money. And my thing is with Neil Olshay, who almost, we should almost treat him like, like I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but we should almost treat him like Voldemort. Uh, he who must not be named. But I, I'll name him. I'll, I'm not going to give him that power. Neil Olshay, that's his name. Neil Olshay. Did he have any nicknames? Did Olshay, we we need to give Olshay a nickname in retrospect. What's a good nickname for Neil Olshay that we can refer to him as? Obviously, uh, nothing flattering is allowed. But I will say, you know, he worked around the margins. Like, he tried, and he probably gets a a more tough, you know, rap on his moves because, A, we didn't maximize the window with Lillard. The franchise didn't. And a lot of Olshay's moves, I think, were also out of self-preservation, especially in the draft, even though that they manifest themselves in some good products like Anfernee Simons. I'll give him that. But you're also at a moment where you probably should have shown a little bit more championship urgency. But then again, Lillard was not showing that same urgency to, that he is now. The timelines. like the Nothing was quite in sync with everything. Like, should have dealt CJ years before you did. Should have, you know, put your foot in the ground and made that declarative, you know, mark in the franchise's pathway. And he didn't. He didn't because he was interested in keeping his job and being a big fish in a small pond, all that stuff. And that's what uh, that's what he did. You know, soap opera Neil, whatever, whatever nickname you want to use for him. But Zach Lowe did a really nice job saying, hey, this goes back to the Aldridge exit in 2015. And even if you get past that, I, I would say the. Even before that, really, the Wesley Matthews injury, such a tough pill to swallow because that's what led to the Aflalo trade at the trade deadline, and I was in the seat that I am now when Aaron Aflalo got traded to Portland. Like That's how long it's been, and I'll try not to think about that for too long. But that was a big deal. Aflalo was just, that was the piece that was going to get us over the top at the deadline. He was going to be able to come off the bench and everything, and then Matthews, you know, tears the Achilles, and Aflalo has to start, and it's never quite the same. And uh, Aldridge ultimately goes to San Antonio, and now you got to reinvent yourself. So that's the, the hurdle number one that didn't go Portland's way. That had they got a better, you know, had they got a better deal on that, maybe found themselves in the conference finals or something. Maybe we'd be talking about something different. But. Then in 2019, I feel like the playoff appearance and the Western Conference Finals appearance maybe gave Portland a little bit of a, a false hope because you did it without Yusuf Nurkic, who, for sustainable purposes, needed to be one of your top guys, and he got hurt, obviously, and so he wasn't going to be a top guy when he came back anyway. But you're like, hey, we got to the Western Conference Finals. We're right there, man. We're right there. And I think that was probably... Not the best uh, way to consider it, and Zach Lowe would agree. So in 2020 comes around, you trade two first-round picks for Robert Covington. You know, you flip Gary Trent Jr. for uh, for Norman Powell, and that team. That's a tough one, and then COVID was all part of it as well. But the Blazers were already underachieving prior to the COVID break, and then Nurkic got hurt right before the COVID break. But that team wasn't quite gelling 
you know, the way that it, it wanted to. And uh, obviously the Powell deal was right at the trade deadline anyway. So then you go to the bubble, you're the eight seed, you take game one from the Lakers, but the, the you know, biggest achievement was getting to the playoffs as the eight seed. And you come out of that, you try to go into 2021 with big expectations, big hopes. And I think that's where it really ended. Where it truly ended was the Denver series. They didn't even have Jamal Murray. And Dame scores 55 in game five. And you lose. It's over. And if, and honestly, I think if you're being honest with yourself as a Blazer fan, you knew it was over. You knew after that game that it was, that it was, that it was going to be coming to an end. And um, here we are almost two years later and well, over two years later now. And, uh, and it really is coming to an end, we think. So that was all kind of part of the, the Zach Lowe piece. And he went into more depth, which was good. And then he also talked about it with Kevin Pelton, who uh Northwest based guy, Kevin Pelton and uh, Zach Lowe and Kevin Pelton were fleshing this out some more uh, from Vegas, even after the Cronin press conference earlier this week. And Zach Lowe was saying, look, like, I want to say Lillard to Miami is a done deal, but with each passing day, I'm starting to wonder. Now now there's suspense. Like, my assumption all along was this will be a long, drawn-out process, and I'm sorry, Dame, but that's the trade-off you made when you signed an extension with Portland is this does not get to unfold on your timetable. But, but, but my assumption, and I guess if you ask me to bet now, would still be that it just takes a while and Portland extracts enough out of Miami that everyone can be happy and the Heat will certainly fight to keep Hawkes, who's a win-now player, and fight, fight to keep a swap or a pick. Like, that stuff matters. My assumption has been that that's where we'll end up. But every day that goes by, every week that goes by, like, who knows? Exactly. Who, who knows what kind of wrinkles are, are coming? Meanwhile, you got other anonymous social media accounts saying, deal's done, deal's done, deal's done. It's just a matter of time. And uh, I'm like, the fact that it is just a matter of time means that the deal is not done. Like, that's the that's the part of it. Like, nothing is signed, sealed, and delivered. And until it is, nothing's truly done. Kevin Pelton uh, expanded on it. I would, for the reasons I laid out at the start of this. And I would say, I don't think that they're bluffing. Like, certainly, everything that Joe Cronin said yesterday is what you're hearing from everyone behind the scenes, that there's no traction with other teams, that, you know, that this could take months, that they're happy to wait this out, and they don't feel comfortable making the Miami offer, at the very least, as it is right now. I will say, it's one thing to say that on July 11th, and it's another thing to say that on September 11th, when training camp is two weeks away, and you're staring at the prospect of actually doing it, and also the, the like the actual challenges of making the trade become greater in season. You can't take back, you know, so many guys that it pushes you over the roster limit. Like you have to start cutting guys. If you make this trade, you know, after the season starts, you do it in training camp. Still those, those challenges are why the Donovan Mitchell trade got done when it did. Uh, so I think you can, it's, it's easier to take that position, even if it's a legitimate position now than it will be. I think, you know, and that's a good point. Like, it's a lot easier to say what Cronin said on July, you know, 11th, uh, technically the the 10th, than it will be in a couple of months when training camp comes around. But I guess his stomach is going to get tested. I think Pat Riley's stomach is going to get tested a little bit as well. And, you know, what you're seeing around socials or, or other articles, et cetera, say the possible package from Miami at this point would be Tyler Hero to a third team that's not Portland. 
Okay, because I, I think we've already crossed that bridge. It, it won't be Portland. Um, but it would be a third team for Tyler Hero. It would be uh, Kyle Lowry's expiring to Portland. It would be two first-round picks. And then either Nikola Jovic or Jaime Hawkins Jr. And not both. Portland is trying to get both Nikola Jovic and Jaime Hawkins Jr. And Miami's like, no, we're not going to give you both. We're going to give you one of those two guys. And then the other layer to all of this is if Miami can somehow conjure up another first-round pick to give to Portland and make it three first-round picks, then Portland might do that deal. And in order to do that, they might trade Caleb Martin, who had himself a nice postseason. If Miami finds a way to move Caleb Martin and get a first-round pick back, they might flip that one in a Lillard deal. So that could potentially be the multi-team, you know, the multi-faceted trade that gets Lillard to Miami involves maybe three first-round picks coming to the Blazers um, in addition to either Jovic or Jaquez and, and Kyle Lowry's expiring. I still don't think that's enough. Honestly, I still don't think that's enough, but I also think that maybe the Blazers would be considering like an actual established player. We heard the Jalen Brown stuff. We heard the Mikhail Bridges stuff. Zach Lowe talked about that a little bit as well, saying like, hey, aside from picks, is there like an established player that Portland could also get back in, in this deal? If they want, I keep getting stuck on if they want a player, who's the player? And if it, like Hero would be the player, like the young building block player. And they're already well stocked with guards, so maybe they don't want another guard. Who's the player? And that's where like, I haven't really been able to answer that question of like who's the player, who's the Mikhail Bridges of this trade for them. I don't like Maxi is an answer that has been used by lots of people. We can talk about the three team, you know, trade where all of this gets wrapped up together with the Clippers, the Sixers, and the Blazers. I think there are workable versions of that for sure, where Harden goes to the Clippers, Dame goes to the Sixers, a whole boatload of stuff, including Tyrese Maxi, goes to um Portland and maybe like a Norm Powell or something comes to Philadelphia. I don't know, something like that. Um, I think there's workable versions of that, but like I haven't like, but Maxie's a small guard too. He's better than the small guards Portland's got. Maybe Scoot looks like he's going to be a stud. I haven't found the player. You know what I mean? Like the the guy that I'm going to be is going to be my Mikhail Bridges. And I, I do wonder about that too with Portland and if the fact that it's you know you got Scoot, you got Shaden, so therefore. You don't need another player back. You're fine just getting trade assets uh, or picks, I'm sh- I should say. Drop picks back. Then, you know, I guess I can understand that. But I also kind of share Zach Lowe's, you know, sentiment here with, hey, like, is there an established player that you can get back if this thing becomes three or four teams? Like Oklahoma City's got some guys and a lot of picks. Utah's got some guys and a lot of picks. Like, is there anything else that you can get almost greedy with despite having little to no leverage because Lillard is only specified one team that he wants to go to. I don't know. You know, you'll see on social media, hey, the deal is almost done. It's almost done. It it might be. But if if you're asking me, I I still think we're in this for for the long haul. I think it's going to be a couple of weeks at least and maybe into August and you know, I don't I don't know if Cronin's got the stomach to take it into September, but I I hope that he does if it means getting adequate value in return. 
You can tweet at Judah Newby at 750 the game with your take as well. We'll bounce a break and come back. Wrap up shop. Take you up to 6 o'clock in Portland Timbers soccer here on 750 the game and the Baldfish Truth Radio Network. Appreciate everybody being along for the ride. Thanks to our guests that joined us today. Spencer McLaughlin locked on Pack 12. Carter Baines as well from 247 Sports. Talked a lot of college football today, which was a nice little change of pace from uh, the Dame Watch that we've been under for the last 10 days or so and uh, will continue to be um, as we'll see how much of the Miami package ends up becoming real. And nothing's real, as we heard in the last segment. Nothing's real until an offer is actually submitted um, by one team, by two teams. We'll see. It's probably going to be a multi-team deal, but exactly what that deal looks like I think remains anyone's guess. I did hear Albert Breer. He was on with uh, Dan Patrick recently, and I thought this was interesting because as we get closer to another football season, you know, on the Pac-12, the quarterbacks reign supreme, and however healthy uh, your quarterback is for the duration of the season and probably will indicate how well he's performing. And if he's performing well and he plays in every single game, I think you've got a good shot to win this conference if you're like four or five teams, maybe six teams. I'd include Oregon State. I'd include Washington. I'd include Oregon. I'd include Utah and USC. Yeah, probably, probably leave it there. But you never know. You never know with some of these wild cards out there. Um, but Albert Breer was talking about which quarterbacks could be the top picks in the NFL draft next year. And if you're a casual football fan, you know that that starts with one name and one name only, and that's USC's Caleb Williams. Albert Breer was asked by Dan if there are any negatives surrounding the signal caller at Southern Cal. It's hard to find one, Dan. I mean, we're really at the point now where it feels like this is encroaching on that Andrew Luck, Trevor Lawrence category. And I, you know, I, I've been covering the league for almost 20 years, and I, I think over my lifetime there are four guys that are sort of in a different category from a prospect standpoint at that position. John Elway, Peyton Manning, Andrew Luck, Trevor Lawrence. Now, doesn't, again, doesn't mean anything as far as what they became in the league, but just how they were seen coming out of college. And I think the lack of flaws with Caleb Williams, and of course we're going to pick him apart, and he's going to have all the pressure on him this fall because of that. Um, but just as far as where they are, you know, going into their last year and then where they should be coming out of their last year in college, that's where Caleb Williams is. And Drake May is really well thought of, too. But everybody I've talked to said there is a gap. You know, it's Caleb Williams, one gap, Drake May, two gap and then the pack. And so Caleb Williams is seen that way as the sort of generational prospect that Trevor Lawrence or Andrew Luck were over the last 15 years. As far as I'm concerned, like, I know Caleb Williams is incredibly talented and sky's the limit, all that stuff. Skill sets there, arms there, legs are there, pocket mobility is there, which is what you have to have to win the modern NFL. You can slow down with your Mahomes takes <laughs> for my money. You know, it's so easy to do that. And when you see Mahomes' success in hindsight, but guess what? Mahomes got to sit a year, got to sit a whole year, played barely at the end of his rookie year. Which I'm a big fan of that. I love taking a guy high and then just letting him sit and marinate before you, you throw him to the wolves. And uh, Mahomes ended up succeeding and killing a lot of wolves in the process. Don't come after me, Peter. Just saying. Caleb Williams? I don't know if he's that guy. If he goes to Arizona number one or whoever ends up getting the number one pick, I don't know that he's got the Mahomes level of success early on. I think he's immensely talented. I just think the NFL is such a different game. 
and who knows if he gets into his QB-friendly scheme at the next level, as he has with Lincoln Riley, who he's been able to thrive with now at two different spots in the college football world. Where the conversation got interesting to me was when Dan asked Albert, after Caleb Williams, after North Carolina's Drake May, who's next? Who could be number three off the board? Who else could get into the uh, the first round of the draft? Because depending on who you ask, it might not be a deep first-round class of quarterbacks uh, the way that we saw this past year. And all Albert Breer answered, who could be right behind May and Williams? And uh, Oregon fans should like what they hear. Give me some other names that we should keep an eye on this upcoming season. That, yes, Caleb Williams is one, Drake May would be two, and then who's going to be that third quarterback off the board? Sure. Like I, One name that, that kind of kept coming up when I talked to more people was Bo Nix at Oregon, who you know I think was seen as a very flawed player playing in a flawed offense at Auburn. And I think he opened a lot of eyes mm. with what he did last year at Oregon. And being able to do that again, even though he lost his offensive coordinator, and even though he lost some offensive linemen in his sixth year in college this year, I think could get him in the first round discussion. Uh, he, and I think he's a little closer to that than some of the other guys. Now, there are guys that I think have more talent than him, and two of them will be Quinn Ewers at Texas and J.J. McCarthy at Michigan, where those guys have talent to potentially go in the first round. The question is, are they going to develop like they need to develop? Like, they aren't finished products yet. Um, you know, when I – Trent Dilfer, who, you know, like, and as you know, sees all these kids from high school on up and has seen a lot of these guys through the Elite 11 program since they were teenagers – said Quinn Ewers has like a Jeff George arm, right? And I think when you watch Texas on Saturdays, you can see that. So, But Ewers is still pretty raw. So playing another year for Steve Sarkeesian at Texas, does he get there where he's the third quarterback off the board? J.J. McCarthy's another one where he was up and down at points last year, but he won his first 12 starts at Michigan. So is he in the conversation? So I, I think those three names, Knicks, McCarthy, Ewers, would be in the conversation. Jordan Travis at Florida State's another one. And I think that's what's so intriguing about this year's class. You've got a clear one, you got a clear two, and then you've got like this clump of players where there's real talent and they're going to kind of duke it out for draft position over the course of the next six months. So I like that. You know, if he's given, you know, one option to take after Drake May and Caleb Williams, you'd take Bo Nix. And to me, like, I still got to see a little bit more out of Bo, plus I got to see him stay healthy for an entire year, which is way easier said than done. I don't know that I see first round upside with him, but who's to say that some NFL team, you know, doesn't see that. I think I'd have Penix over Bonix myself, but you know, a lot of that and it's a similar conversation between the two guys. It's hard to divorce the quarterback skill set from the scheme in which they play. You know, you throw on the Indiana tape, you're probably not blown away by Michael Penix except for a handful of just really uber athletic plays. You throw on the 2022 Washington tape, it's a different story. Now, you could say, hey, Kalen DeBoer was his OC at Indiana, uh, and he was his head coach you know, at, at UW. But regardless, I think both Penix and Bo Nix, they strike me as similar guys with high ceiling for their uh, college football seasons in 2023 and potential to get to the first round, maybe mid-first round, maybe higher, depending on how well they play and then how well they survived the nitpicking that is the NFL Combine and draft season. So that'll do it for us on the radio show. It's been a fun one. Uh, been a lot of fun. Jock Adzano will be back uh, tomorrow. And coming up next here in Portland on 750 The Game, Portland Timber Soccer. 
getting ready for a restarted match that was banded from the 4th of July midway through. That's coming up next. We'll have a little pregame coverage here from the Timbers head coach and then uh, give you the play-by-play of Timbers and Rapids starting with minute 46 in a nil-nil game. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm Shooter Newby in for John Cazzano. Talk to you down the line right here on the BFT and the Bald Face Truth Radio Network.